0: hello and welcome to the canadian wargamer podcast Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature war games and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foye d'Arable die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. James, how are you now?
1: All right, how are you?
0: Not so bad. Not so bad, thanks. Here we are at the beginning of Episode 8 of the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. We've made it to eight episodes. We have, I uh, checked as of tonight, we have 1,860 downloads. woo I can't tell you um, much about who they are. Most of them are from Canada and the United States. We have a few from Britain. Um, I noticed one in Taiwan. Hmm. And somebody in Spain downloads our podcast. I think that's probably our Animal. friend, Benito. Yeah. yeah. Hey Benito, how are you? Como está? That's, that's all my Spanish.
1: That's so, more in mine.
0: <laughs> so, in a minute, we're going to be joined by uh, our friend Chris, who's going to talk to us. Um, we're going to talk about our experience at uh, Lard A on Saturday. Lard A for our British listeners.
1: Lots hey. of lard, eh? Lots of lard, eh?
0: Yeah. You get enough lard, eh?
1: And, you uh, to fry your doughnuts. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, here's a here's a true fact about my wife Joy. She grew up on a farm in uh, Gray County, up on the the mountain, about Collingwood, yeah, uh, near Singhampton. She was taught by her grandmother how to render lard. Wow, how cool is that? I always say to her when she says that I have no proof of this. You have never rendered lard in my presence, and uh, but. I think it's probably a good thing in the event of the zombie apocalypse that my wife knows how to render lard. It sounds like a
1: survival skill. Like she's pretty, she's almost Amish.
0: Almost. No, not really. You know. Joy's like far the farthest thing <laughs> you could imagine. Anyway, here we are plugging away at episode eight. And it's nice to be having that continuity of doing one a month. We get pretty minimal feedback, uh, but I did get a comment from one of our faithful listeners in. Uh, the deepest, darkest Napolis Valley, Ross McFarlane, who has that lovely um, old-school Wargaming blog, Battle Game of the Month.
1: Yeah, hi, Ross. Yeah,
0: Ross, how are you? Ross writes, another interesting and enjoyable episode, even if I do occasionally feel a bit like Rip Van Winkle, waking or a traveler in um, Well's Time Machine and seeing a strange and nearly alien future, but I exaggerate for effect, of course. Keep them coming. P.S. A vote for Ortona. That must be a reference to our conversation with Alex
1: about... Oh, what uh, movie we'd make.
0: Yeah, or what ranges of figures we'd like. It says, A vote for Artona, where my father served in the RCCS. That must be Royal Canadian Corps of Signals. Mm. Uh, in the front lines as well as... uncles in that. As, yeah, as well as later in the Low Countries where he earned a certification for outstanding service signed by Monty when the 5th Division HQ was overrun. So there. Thanks, Ooh. Ross. Really appreciate you listening. And uh, I know that... Um, uh, Ken Riley, who does the Arkshire Gamer podcast, he was talking uh, about a week ago with uh, Kurt Campbell. We talked to Kurt, I think, in episode two. Yeah. And uh, so everybody's been talking to Kurt. War Games Soldiers and Strategy podcast talked to him recently because he's oh. just about to start the Analog Hobbies.
1: Uh, Kurt's got interesting stuff to say, so.
0: Yeah, he does. And uh, it was nice that uh, Kurt mentioned that he talked to us uh, a while ago and Ken Riley said that he listened so hey Ken hey Kurt so so you made it back from Hamilton OK
1: I was a little hair raising cuz Hamilton is terrible to drive in if you're not a local and you know wrong turn in the dark I found myself on the way to, not- to the United States <laughs> I was in Stony Creek before I could turn around so it was like yeah. that added about 40 minutes to my drive home which sucked Balls, because yeah. it started to snow
0: yeah it was a rough drive home yeah it was it w- saturday night on our way home from uh, Larde. yeah you and yeah. i were both going north out of hamilton in slightly different directions you were going west and i was going northeast but um yeah for the benefit of our listeners who don't really know hamilton very well it's a it's a lateral city it's it runs along the shore of lake ontario and it, for some reason a lot of it is um one-way streets and,
1: and it's on the it, it's on a, it, it's on the side of an escarpment too yeah which yeah. really complicates the geography that's
0: right and it's complicated oh. because to go up the escarpment you have to go south whereas if you want to go north you go down to the lake and in my mind north is up and south is down so that I lived in Hamilton for years when I was yeah. a student of McMaster and that always threw me but and I,
1: that and that's what messed me up because I I was thinking I want to go home I need to go north I and, to go so home. I, and so and so, so instead of taking the the, the expressway south to get out of town I took north which steered me to Niagara Falls and it's like a swearing yeah. angst I finally got home and collapsed and, you know but yeah. it was it was a rough day to a to it was a rough end to what was a very good day so I mean it was the most fun I've had for 10 bucks in in ages
0: yeah yeah
1: and you know, I played just, uh, I played yeah. two games
0: well, why don't we? Well, we're waiting for Chris. Why don't you, uh, do you? Do want to talk about them? Do you want? Because you yeah. played Infamy in the morning, right?
1: Yeah, I played Infamy. Infamy, put on by Sean Malcolmson. Uh, okay. Lovely toys. Nice terrain. Uh, pictures yep. on my blog. Um,
0: it involved cattle rustling, as I recall.
1: Well, the, yeah, the 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 Romans were going back to camp with their tribute, Romans. which was a herd of cattle. Which, of course, we took exception to. I was in the. I was uh two of us are running the british tribesmen. um it's kind of interesting that you know like the 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 tribal player has the ambush points that they can deploy around the table to try and deploy from um although big assets like our cavalry had to come on on our deployment zone they couldn't like just pop out of a stand of trees sadly
0: right
1: uh you know and the and and we also have fervor, which you know, if you're any any lardy rules, you got shock. Fervor is like negative shock, like it's it's sort of a positive integer on the shock. Okay. Right. So you know, Romans are putting shock on, and if you got fervor, then that whittles down the fervor before you start getting negative shock piling up, which is kind of neat. Is that designed to simulate fanaticism? Or yeah. Yeah, and you you want to get your guys whipped up, and and actually, if they get to a certain amount of fervor, then you have to charge, whether you want to or not. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's also kind of a user lose it, like once you get them to a certain peak, like you got to kind of time, uh, getting the fervor up, but not waiting too long before you launch your attack, otherwise it'll dribble away too. Which is neat. That makes me think
0: of all those guys like the beginning of. Um... Uh Gladiator going yeah. or the Germans rather, you know, banging their yeah. shields and working yeah. them up into a Zulu war of chant. Mother. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um they also sound like orcs at Isengard or but um yeah, and then the Romans have their drill, you know, so right. they can play command command cards to you know, you're you're your, I'm throwing javelins at them, they can play a throw down a command card and raise their shields.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which gives them a Better modifier on their armor save,
0: right.
1: so, Or a neg- or is it a negative modifier? Might to hit? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those two makes yeah. them hard- makes a little bastards harder to kill. But it was a great British victory. We lifted our. Um, unfortunately, their their auxilia came on first, and we thumped them with the tribal warriors. And then I was just getting into a bit of a rant about you know where the f- where the hell are the nobles? Letting all the warriors do the bleeding, you know. Poncy nobles sitting around their chariots being all, ooh, we're nobles, look at us. And then, yeah, the card came out for the nobles and they got it deployed. And they managed to smack into the legionaries and hold them up long enough for our cavalry to do an end run and scoop the cattle.
0: Yeah, I noticed in some of the pictures there were chariots. How did did the chariots behave?
1: Uh, Well, the the British chariots are just transportation. Like you can do, you know, like you can do um, skirmishing. You, know, you can scoot in, throw javelins, evade, right? Um, and that will actually help your fervor for your warriors watching this, right? Mm-hmm. But you, you, you don't want to charge in with them. I mean, the British chariots were basically uh, a balsa wood wag cart being drawn by a couple of ponies. You know, right. it's not not Ben Hur in the Colosseum kind of thing. He's a very fragile little cart. Not with,
0: no with big scythes on their axles.
1: No, no, none of that. So they're, they're just they're, they're just a battle taxi, but the Legionaries were close enough to my ambush point that my noble warriors just charged out on foot and got stuck in. It was a big, ugly football scrum.
2: Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and
1: then, uh, well, we had lunch, because you finally showed up, and um, then we played uh, O-Group
0: yeah
1: well wow. which i thought was really neat
0: yeah we'll have a bit more of a chin rag about uh Ogre in a minute i see chris is uh is joining us
1: yeah okay yeah
0: chris
3: hi chris how are you now hello good thanks yourself we're not good so bad.
0: not so bad claudia nice of you to join us no problem yeah so we're live and we are recording the podcast and there's no script so welcome to the canadian wargamer podcast
3: Oh, thanks. I'm very glad to be here. I've been a listener since episode one.
0: Oh, Woo! God bless you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so safe. Nice. long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: Long-time wow. listener, first-time caller, yeah. Well, Hello, caller! Way. What do you want to speak to us about? Yeah. So, Chris, we were hoping, uh, obviously, that uh, you'd be joined by your uh, your um, partner in crime for uh, Larde um, Barnaby. But, uh, sadly, Barnaby's not able to join us tonight, so um, we're really glad to have you with us. We were just talking a little bit about... Um, our own uh, gaming experiences but um we thought maybe we could just do a little overview so am i correct in thinking that this was the first large dedicated event in the canadian Mentors community uh,
3: as far as we know it is yeah um as far i mean as we know. yeah i mean we've we haven't done a very comprehensive survey but uh it's never cropped up on any of the you know the lardy forums or the the uh yeah, yeah uh, email group or the uh or twitter or, or any of the usual spots. so i think we think it is yeah it's okay a, other canadian it's gamers take community. note
0: if you do not get proof to us within i don't know 48 hours <laughs> then we are officially claiming it i like think the first so yeah large event in canada so there
1: i think we're pretty safe on that
0: the clock is running my friends yeah. <laughs> chris whose idea was it was it yours or barnaby's
3: well it's a, a bit of a Funny story, maybe not a funny story, but interesting story. Uh, Barnaby and I met uh, in person. I think I'd seen him on you know, one of the miniatures uh, pages that we don't often mention anymore. But uh, uh, we met at uh, Glenn Pierce's house and uh, about five years ago and found out we were both Lardis uh, through the course of that game. And we had a conversation that started in his backyard as we were leaving and went into the street. And I think we spent about 20 minutes standing on the sidewalk having a conversation about our interest in lardy games and and both of us sort of had the mutual interest in um you know having something happen barnaby obviously with his, you know with his hamilton uh, group and the, the the hall they have available and uh, i'm just more the uh uh person willing to put some some uh some additional time into it myself to uh put it together and we've talked about it for a few years and it was 2019 late 2019 we uh decided to, to put things in motion and started reaching out in 2020 to people, uh, talked to Rich at TFL and uh, talked to some potential GMs and we're gonna have it as part of a, uh, a three-day broadsword that Barnaby was looking to put together when they're moving from a one-day event to a, a launder event. We'd have sort of a corner there for, for Lardy's um, and we all know how 2020 turned out. So I'm not uh, that didn't happen.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm not enjoying the sequel much, I should I can tell you. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> uh we we even had plans last uh last fall for sort of another uh, effort that was probably more like what we ended up having uh uh this time but obviously that went sideways as well last fall so we we started again guess late August this year to uh to put some plans in place and we had a lot of a lot of off ramps but by late September we decided we uh we thought we could make a goal of it
1: good yeah and we've you know managed to sneak in with the before things have to tighten up again or yeah. not, so. Yeah.
0: yeah, do you think you, you, do you feel like you dodged a bit of a bullet potentially with Omicron, Chris?
3: Yeah, cause I think uh, it was starting to break with the same day we were having uh, yeah. our Lardes day. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, I, I suspect even without it, we might be tightening things up in the winter yeah. after the holidays too with everybody inside, but.
0: Uh, yeah, there's been some discussion at the Hot Lead Brain Trust today about that too, but. Yeah. how that might affect hot Light in March but then nobody knows right we're all yeah. kind of trying to figure out what this is all going to be yeah about. I, I'm just so grateful that you and Barnaby stuck to your guns and made this happen because um, you know I've been listening for months and months now to uh, our British friends talk about their uh, return to uh, gaming events and uh, with you know and great envy and so uh, even though I was only able to make it to half the day, I was, I was singing a happy song as I drove towards Hamilton. So thanks so much for making this happen.
3: Well, we're, we're certainly glad to do it and glad to hear stories like that, too. We certainly heard a, heard a few of those from from folks who are having not only some of their first convention experiences in a couple of years, but even some of their first face-to-face gaming in a couple of years uh, that yeah. day. Well, you even course. had you even had
1: someone there. That, that was a, the, the first time I ever played a war game, right?
3: Uh, a miniatures, Damien. I I'm not sure about board, but certainly for miniatures, yeah. yeah the one fellow was out there. I think was, uh, from one of his notes to me, he said it sounds like during lockdown, he started to look into it and ordered some stuff and ordered some rules and uh, was sort of uh, uh, hanging out on some of the uh, the Facebook groups and uh, saw the announcement and decided to dive right in. And he's he's out your way, James. So hopefully he's, he knows about hot lights, so hopefully
1: that comes oh, he, off. He's contacted yeah. us, Yeah he contact he contacted mike and i about from the blog
0: okay oh, that's correct yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah and I, I gave him a i gave him a shout out on the hot lead facebook group so hopefully somebody will make contact mm-hmm. So yeah
0: chris whose idea was it was the title the title was pretty brilliant
3: uh i'll, I'll take credit for that okay <laughs> except, except as a marketing tool i'm, I'm not sure i get much kudos because i've seen it spelled at least four different ways yeah. since uh possibly yeah. more um so, so i'll have to work on that over time but uh
0: it's it, it's subtle it has that dry canadian wit to it that
1: uh yeah well cause, yeah because the the other one that had bounced around before and there's a facebook group for it um frozen lard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you
3: know
1: uh, so. uh, yeah, barney may
3: mention he's heard people hybridizing hybridizing the two uh to frozen lardes uh which I, I guess is what we'd call any winter event we, we should have uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> And I just, for your international listeners, listeners too, if you, if you need to, to get the joke, um, uh, for, our, for some of our cultural ambassadors from about 40 years ago, Bob and Doug McKenzie, have some YouTube videos up. And if you watch enough of those, you'll get the Lardes uh, reference. You do indeed.
0: Yeah. yeah. Although yeah. we, the three of us, are much more sophisticated than Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, take off, hoser. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bud.
4: <laughs> wish so, to quote
1: Letterkenny, wish you weren't so freaking awkward <laughs> oh give your balls a tug
0: <laughs> yeah we're very polite here um <laughs> yeah and the uh just for the benefit of folks uh who aren't familiar with the, the local gaming scene chris you mentioned broadsword which is the hamilton event that barnaby's been doing for a few years now
3: yeah yeah barnaby um so I, well, i'm actually nowhere near hamilton but i've been going to broadsword sort of um uh, I guess since about 2017, on a fairly regular basis, and it's been a, a two or th- two or three times a year. They'll have that as a one one day, a Saturday event uh, at their um, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry Veterans Association Hall, uh, and it's um, put on by the Hamilton Tabletop Gaming Society, which is a fairly large and well organized group uh, down that way that meets uh, under happier times uh, once a month for a. Uh, a Friday night of gaming, and uh, and then puts this event on uh, a few times a year. Although it was looking to change its format in 2020, and I don't know if they will back to that or not, but uh, that was the, the yeah, plan. I've
1: to... Tried to get to as many broadswords as I can, scheduling permitting. I always seem to have conflicts, but when I do go, it's the most. It, it's an awful lot of fun for ten bucks. It is. Yep. I yep. I've played some really neat games there. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Chris, you're based, um, is it Peterborough? Area? Peterborough, yeah. Yeah, so that was a long drive for you. Did you?
3: Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's not you, too uh, bad on a, a Saturday morning. You can usually get yeah. there in about two hours without Ouch. too much traffic.
0: What time did you get home on uh, Saturday?
3: Well, actually, I cheated this time, uh, partly due to plans to avoid any uh, bad weather or anything else, but also just to make sure I had a lot of buffer. But I, I, I have a family down, KWA, so I was, I was there. Friday night and then went back there Saturday night so okay. about an hour' away.
0: Smart. Yeah Canadian uh, winter gaming does have its uh, does have its challenges. I was listening to um, Kurt Campbell, uh, the genius of the analog painting competition, mm-hmm. trying to describe Canadian gaming in the winter to um, Ken Riley the Yorkshire gamer mm-hmm. and he was uh, describing um, you know how there's not a lot of stuff that happens in the winter we mostly sort of hibernate and paint.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah even uh, in town, if it's bad weather, people just say, ah, "I'm going to stay home."
0: Yeah, the first time I met Kurt, I I was based out of Medicine Hat at the time, and he, and I had gotten to know him and invited myself to a weekend of gaming at his place in Regina. And uh, it was, as I recall, March, and it was a pretty nice, dry drive there. It's about a four to five hour drive, but on the way back, uh, about an hour. Out of vagina i got caught by a blizzard and it just got worse and worse and it took me about 10 hours of white knuckling to Mm. yikes following a truck that i could barely see and praying that i would make it so yeah (laughs) the sacrifices we make for our Mm hobby
1: that's right yeah but uh so so you had am i thinking you had like 11 games uh we we could have uh my
3: running my game a second time was sort of the 11th if we all had lots of players um uh, but yeah, we had, we had ten games, uh, five in okay. each time slot, and about twenty-ish
1: yeah. players.
3: Yeah, I think uh, and the the sort of the sign-in sheet we had to run for for COVID stuff uh, had twenty-four names on it, which, okay. including Barnaby and
1: I. It was twenty-two other people. Yeah, shame a shame a bunch of people had to cancel at last minute because you know I didn't uh, I didn't bring a friend, thinking well you know last I'd heard it, you know you're under the, yeah. the wait list. Yeah, uh, and then all these people cancel. It's like, well, damn it! Now you know I could have brought my friend and had a, you know, someone for
3: the drive. Yeah, that's something we want to work on for next time. Is probably have some sort of paid prepayment, uh, pre-registration, sort of, mm-hmm. then just to get people to be a bit stronger commitment. Um, yeah, it, it was a bit of a it swan both ways sort of over the last few months where we where we uh, were trying to get enough GMs to run enough games, and then we needed to get gamers to fill them. Then we woke up one day and found out we had about five more gamers than we had slots for at the time. And uh, luckily some GMs offered to run their games a second time, Um, uh, especially uh, what turned out to be some of the popular ones, that Chain of Command and Infamy Infamy that were full in both slots Um, uh, to to expand that. And then we sort of let a few more people in. And then after that, we... uh, we, uh, we lost some, and some we knew about, and some we didn't. Mm. Uh, it, yeah, We wanted to be a bit more careful because it was such a small event that we didn't want to have people not having a game to play or, or also not wanting to have any
1: GMs have to pack up without anybody playing their games.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah exactly.
1: Uh, it was, was well-managed on that, on that end of things.
0: Yeah, every game I saw had at least two players. So yeah. that yeah. seemed to yeah. work well.
1: And I actually I, I kind of enjoyed just playing head to head with Mike in the O group game. I guess we had if we'd had a four player game or like a three player game, it would have been awkward. Mm-hmm. You know. So then you always got the oh where well, we're gonna allocate our orders and I wanna do this, no, no, and you know. I so just playing it the way it's supposed to be played, one on one. Yeah, yeah it of- felt
0: like a little bit of a master class from Brian really, just for two students, I think which is really I mean he was basically Teaching us how to play the game as we went along, and,
1: yeah. yeah was, which is nice. Cool. That's what I wanted. Yeah,
0: Chris, talk about your game a little bit. You did the, you did a Civil War game, right? I
3: did, I did with Sharp Practice. Uh, it was uh, a it was scenario five out of the book, the battle. Um, so that in that I had uh, this was in fifteen millimeter. Uh, we had uh, It was just to give it some some place in history and also was, uh, Fredericksburg was a battle where some of the forces I have like the unique forces were all there. Um, so it was sort of set up to be sort of the day after Fredericksburg where the Confederates were continuing to push the union Union, and trying to drive them out of a small town or the edge of a small town to capture a key, key um, uh, communication and transportation hub. Uh, so that they were, they were uh, advancing through some farm fields and around some, farm buildings and, uh, the union was sort of trying to defend from across the creek. Although the union player got pretty aggressive and went across the creek and, uh, see some key territory and, uh, made, made it a bad day for the Confederates.
1: Mm. And you had really great looking geese and chickens on the table. So
3: yeah, that was the key point. And, and, and I haven't had any comments on it, but there were both the proper, uh, quality and quantity of outhouses on the table, which is the first time <laughs> I've been able to pull that off. I even had, I extra, I even had extras I didn't put on the table, though they're ready just in case. I needed some you know side by sides.
1: I hadn't thought to count the outhouses No, but yes, that is something we don't we we don't usually see enough of. Yeah.
0: So just for the benefit of our listeners, what's the uh, how do you do that calculation, Chris?
1: Uh, for the qual- quality
3: quantity?
0: quantity
3: yeah yeah uh so at least one for every house mm-hmm. uh there i i felt the church would probably have one too and there was a train station at the edge of the table and and just to emphasize how many outhouses i in fact had i put one there too
0: yeah. Wow. and did they have a tactical use during the battle or? uh
3: no other than i think they'd gotten away at one time of the union trying to stretch out his line but uh we, we let them uh work around the outhouse
0: so they weren't used for ambush sites or anything
3: like. no that. no although i i from what i understand from facebook post that did happen in the chain of command game there was oh a, yeah there, there was a submachine gunner in an outhouse and that
1: yeah hmm. well yeah crazy ivan yeah,
3: yeah.
0: the one thing I, I appreciated about a number of the games was the significant amount of livestock on the table james you were your Britons were fighting over cows. Um, there were geese and chickens in your game, Chris, and the that sharp practice eighteen twelve game had a significant amount of animals on the table as well. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so, they yeah they add uh, they add a lot of color,
3: and um, I think it's right there in the the yardy uh, um, introduction to sharp practice anyway talks about having having livestock and other yeah. scenes in play to, to emphasize that skirmish stale.
0: There you go. Yeah. Delicious, delicious livestock. Yeah. <laughs> so um you're you're taking a bit of rust now, Chris. What are your plans for the uh, what are the plans for the winter? Are you gonna hole up and paint some stuff or Yeah,
3: yeah, I'm, i mean I'm aiming towards uh, hot lead, um, like most people are, trying to figure out what we might I might do there. Um, I think I was mentioning to James in one of the painting chats we were on together that one thing with COVID is I've gotten a lot of projects over the finish line during sort of the last year and a half where I had a lot of uh, half uh, half finished or less than half finished projects sitting around and mm. so uh, you know I, I have choice now so I don't know what I'll do I'll, I'll, I think I've had I think it might have been you Mike who requested uh, some short practice at so I'll try to bring something out there I have some uh, cavalry I just picked up from uh, Carl who's been doing the painting for me on the ACW stuff so I'm fascinated by some of the union cavalry actions and have some reading on that i'm going to try to get some scenarios from so i might bring that out and then maybe something a bit more lighthearted for uh one of the one of the days
0: yeah that'd be great and uh i hope uh i hope i get a chance to play in uh, one of your games at hot lead for sure there will be a hot Lead. i have
1: faith well even if it's virtual we'll do something this year no it's not gonna be virtual it's
0: gonna be amazing and real and yeah it spread
1: out That's with right, masks spread out
0: yeah. yeah it was spread out with masks that was another thing just, by the way i was really uh, impressed by um at steel or sorry not at Larday was uh you know everybody wore masks and no i didn't hear anybody grumbling
1: everybody seemed really well behaved
3: yeah that all that all worked well
1: yeah yeah Got good compliance yeah so- our table our table at O Group was the worst but the three of us all i mean brian and i had been sitting beside each other the week before so mm-hmm. we just kind of like oh, if we leave the table put the mask back on
0: yeah we'd all been sitting across from each other at lunch eating without masks so yeah you, know, you try to be chris do you have any any last thoughts about uh how it went or, or any uh any learnings or
3: yeah we, we, th- we thought it went uh, really well i mean obviously we'll to try to uh try to try see what we can do about scheduling and pre-registration and making sure we have uh Mm-hmm. players and, and games come together for the next one. And there certainly, we expect there will be a next one. We, we did a uh, a survey, not uh, and we actually, you know, I, uh, I was bashing my marketing abilities before with the, the branding, but we did get I think 13 out of 22 certain people filling out surveys, which is pretty high ratio. And we got some good information there, about what people good. would like to see. And it was pretty, pretty unanimous that people would come back and uh, they want to see, two or more of these a year. I don't know if Barney B&L will be doing two or more a year. We'll, we'll, we'll try to look after one anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometime maybe in the spring, we'll look to, to have another Lardays Day uh, in Hamilton. Yeah.
1: That would be good. Do either you
0: think there's any uh, uh, um, chance of doing a, a smaller event kind of like north of Highway 7? Because, you know, there are there are people in Newmarket, there's people in, well, Chris, you're in Peterborough, there's mm-hmm. Is there a gaming scene in Peterborough,
3: or is it just you? And it's, it's not just me, actually, I have a couple of co-workers, uh, although they're, uh, they're uh, more of the bolt action and some uh, Lord of the Rings strategy battle game players than, right. than, than Lardies, although I've been working on them. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and there, there's Howard. He's uh, not far from you, Mike. Um, Our friend Howard from Hot Um And uh, there might be. Um, it'd be, I'm not sure we'd have to figure out maybe, maybe that can be some reconnaissance we can do. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. over the next while, one thing I want to do as well is, is maybe do a survey, uh, through survey monkey or something like that, uh, of the people who didn't come to the first Lardays day, do that on frozen, or ask people on frozen, frozen Lard to provide some input to maybe gather where people are and, and whether yeah. there's anything that we did that may, was the reason they didn't come or, um, you know just was wrong weekend or weather too far away um, yeah. just try to get some more information that way about what might happen or yeah. might, what might yeah. have what might work to draw them in I kind of assumed it was the weather yeah and uh, I think frozen lards uh, if we use that as our main touchstone I think it's a national um, group there I think it's probably heavily weighted towards southern Ontario but uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um you know i i know there are certainly some people from quebec uh on there too and maybe maybe Ottawa way
1: yeah. yeah it'd be well, tough to get them down just for a one day event
3: yeah yeah although some did express interest back in 2020 uh for that for that first event we were trying for hmm. so
0: i think as canadians we're we're pretty used to um you know driving at least two to three hours mm-hmm. maybe maybe two to three hours sort of on average, for a game, so
1: yeah, that's a, that's a that's still a day trip, two yeah, hours, yeah. two to three hours each way. Yeah,
3: it's a yeah, long that,
1: day trip, but it's still a it day trip. A
3: day trip. Yeah, I think maybe in a a non COVID world, um, hmm. where we where we can have all the all the fits things for a large day, where we have you know the the curry and the pies and make it a real social event. I think that would you know it might be a long trip for two games, but people might come for a bit to do that, you know, every once yeah. in
0: a while. It would be lovely. Yeah, it's all about community, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. All right. All right, well, thank you, Chris, for pulling that off and thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, it was really, really great to talk to you and have you on the have you on the podcast.
3: Great, thanks, Mike, thanks, James. Good seeing you, Chris. Good to see you as well.
0: So why don't we pick up where we were with uh, with O-Group? You can just talk a little bit about that and then...
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, I thought it was, I mean, I thought it was a really neat, orders and initiative, you know, and using your combat patrols to push out and then deploy your platoons from is quite clever. And I, I think one thing you have to do with uh, like, well, when I, when I played it once solo to try and learn the rules, I, I drew myself a little sketch map and I put my phase lines on, mm-hmm. right? Cause you can consolidate on your phase line and bring on your reserve companies. So to keep myself honest, I said, right, this is my phase line. I think you kind of have to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: You know. So. Because I had talked about my phase line, but I hadn't really decided before we started playing the game which you know where my phase line was going to be, and. It was um, was a
0: little artificial because the the railway embankment kind of meant that there was there was very little terrain that was contested really right. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to push anything on the other side of the embankment. Um so, you know, it's just the, the nature of that particular scenario meant that uh, I think in your case there would have been re- really only one phase line, and that would have been the, the village of Stottville, and then possibly, you know, a second might have been some of the, the wooded terrain beyond it, but the whole focus of the battle was just trying to get over that embankment and into the town, and I thought your initial attack, I was pretty shocked at how, how much, you know, suddenly you had two or three platoons shooting and Running at me and hitting me with rifle butts, and I was like, "What the hell? (laughs) This is really rude." But so, so, so the tactical options initially were pretty, pretty limited. But you know, I I liked what you said on your blog about how, as you start getting dragged into the main firefight, you start thinking like a company commander, and you forget that you're actually a battalion or a battle group commander, and you know, you've got other assets to manage. And
1: yeah, yeah, and like you know, it's like. You know, instead of spending some orders, you know, those platoons that were on my left that really weren't doing much except w- making you worried about your flank. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, which
1: they could do just by being there. Right. You know, I didn't have to give them orders to do anything. You know, and I could have spent those orders instead of bringing up my reserve. And then had, you know, two full companies on the embankment shooting into the town. Uh-huh. You know, which probably would have been a better use of some some uh initiative but oh it's it's a neat neat set of rules it certainly deserves more play
0: i i think it's um well let me ask you this how do you think it compares in terms of complexity to uh being shot mom is it like the next gen of that set of rules or the, the or is it so is it its own different thing
1: it's its own different thing yeah um because the you know like I ain't been shot mom you still got a little more of the grittiness of you know who's got what where you know where's your Piat team where's your you know machine gun team um or you don't care about that with O group
0: right
1: Right. you just assume that that group of infantry running around well they they must have a Piat because they're infantry and that's yeah. what they carry yeah. so and the, the anti-tank uh, stuff is a little is a lot more abstract too. So, you know, you've kind of moved you've kind of moved up a level from all the technical grit, which bogs way too many World War 2 games down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, like good old um, Command Decision. Did you ever play that?
0: Uh, I I watched people play Command Decision. It was always um, I never really had a chance to get into it, but it was intimidating.
1: Yeah, it got very crunchy, and, and it, you know, same level of command as O-group, but, you know, you're worrying about, is my Sherman fire, you know, what kind of round is my tank firing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's like, I don't care. I'm a battalion commander, and that's an attached <laughs> tank platoon.
0: Yeah,
1: You know? Like, yeah. they just fire whatever the fuck they fire. Yeah. That's their job, to know what to fire. I, I don't tell them what to fire.
0: Yeah, I have no interest in whether it's loaded with armor-piercing, discarded sabot, or, you know, what just something that could kill a tank please go kill that tank
1: now thank you very much yeah you just you just just, you know that that's a nice thing i like about the you know i ain't been shot mom is they just assume you're firing the best round yeah you know for the anti-tank factor versus the he factor um and in o group it's even a little more abstracted than that and you know you notice like the, the the all the combat dice it's you know very much sort of you know four plus plus or minus a couple of modifiers you know, plus or minus a few dice, right? So, Yeah. it's pretty straightforward that way because all the complexity is in the orders and the activation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those are the, the systems to master for sure. And I confess, uh, Brian must've thought I was a bit of a thicky, but I was still struggling with, well, how do I bring other stuff onto the table? Like I wasn't quite understanding that, um, even after Brian had and explained it to me twice, so there's a lot. There's a lot in those rules that I have to go back and and study. And I think it speaks to um, something that a, that a few people on my blog when I posted my review of the Lardy day asked me about with O Group. They were like, "Is it hard? Is it complicated?" And I would say, "Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not a simple game to pick up. You know, in the sense that say it's like okay. a like I haven't played Sam Mustafa's Rommel, but you know." You and I have played some of Sam's games, and they're they're pretty gamey, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they've got very simple mechanics, and, and uh, they're aimed at just having a lot of fun and slapping cards down on each other and that sort of thing. I, I would say if you want to play old group, you need to invest some upfront time to master it.
1: Uh, yeah, because it's 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 like it's a simple game once you figure it out, but because it's very diff- it's a very different animal. Yeah. yeah you know so you can't just say oh well this is like you know this other game you know move every move is six inches and you you know roll this um no it's 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 quite different and you've got to kind of throw away everything you know about playing war games and relearn
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah and i i don't know i i wonder if maybe um richard clark's strategy with two fat lardies is just to let uh you know sort of develop a kind of a uh, the more um what's the word the more complex or the more advanced games to go forward under the rice press label and then to do you know a, a stable of simpler games like what a tanker maybe he's been doing that all along but um, mm. yeah
1: well there are certain like when i when i tried to pitch him my ancients rules um he said, you know, they they are It was kind of they're missing the. The things that the people look for in a in a large game, which at the time, you know, they wanted the card based activation, and some other things which I right. can't remember. But, you know, which, which you don't have that in in General Darmy and and O Group.
0: No, that's true.
1: Right, you know, you don't have those large standards, which is why I think he put them under a different. You know, the rice with Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you'd submitted your rules to to Clark.
1: Yeah, yeah, good oh. for you.
0: That's uh, that's aiming high. Well,
1: you know, I was looking for a publisher for them after working on them for four years. I don't know. I think a lot of people have probably, you know, probably
0: gone down that road. And I admire everybody who tries to write a set of rules. I'm absolutely thick at it. Um, I'm much happier trying to trying to figure out somebody else's rules. Well, you know,
1: so what? I I like you know, I can't remember who it was that said that everyone should try to write a set of rules and then the real proof is don't just play them with your friends who know exactly what you mean when you use a certain term yeah right introduce them to you know and then and then you start to understand how these rules get longer and longer and you you know these idiots that go oh well you know if it's more than two sides of a you know standard piece of paper it's too long and complicated it's like oh shut up <laughs> yeah. Just because you and your friends all know what you mean when you use a certain term, and you all use the same conventions,
0: yeah,
1: you know, I now have to spend five pages explaining those conventions.
0: I, I'm kind of of the opinion that maybe fewer people should try writing rules, and more people should try to write good scenarios. I think that would be good. That's what the hobby is starving for: is, is yeah, well thought out scenarios for uh and you know scenario books for um you know like the large pint-sized campaigns or that sort of thing like i would love to see somebody do a set of scenarios for i don't know seven years war or, um, you know sicily in 1943 or something like that
1: and even if they because um, sometimes you know you do see that you, know, you go oh great but they're so specific to a set of rules they're almost untranslatable to anything else yeah you know what i mean um you know like if you had if, if you had a set it you know set of scenarios for rapid fire and there are a lot of scenario books for rapid fire mm-hmm. but because of the way they abstract a infantry battalion in rapid fire it's kind of like what am i looking at here how would i translate that into o group or you know any other set of rules
0: yeah an old group should actually be fairly easy to write scenarios for because, as you said, it's fairly generic, right? You assume that your platoon is um, is equipped as a platoon would be in that period of the war.
1: Yeah, you 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 follow the the order of battle for the historical scenario and you figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Right. Hmm. I mean, Brian, you know, Brian um, making the decision, you know, because of the situation that. You know, my platoons only had two stands, but they're right, veterans, Right. you know, um, but because I still had four companies, I got that extra, I got that extra order dice, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, because of ammo limitations, I couldn't call divisional artillery, all my artillery is restricted to regimental. Right. So that was, you know, that's how you balance or that's how you design this scenario. If you're using a historical engagement. Yeah.
0: Which made sense given how depleted the Canadian infantry battalions were by post Normandy, right? Yeah, um, and it just got worse through the rest of the war, really. Um, but on the other hand, your troops being veteran, whereas mine were sort of second-rate Luftwaffe guys, um, they were really hard to they were really hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a stand-up fight, It's just as it should be. So yeah, yeah. So we're both keen on O Group, and I think we both would like to learn more about it. Um,
1: yeah, we need we need to play that next time we get together we do
0: yeah and we'll have to figure that out um speaking of rules uh i mentioned on my blog today that uh, i've been hacking around with um, a set of seven years war rules by keith flint published by osprey called honors of war and yeah. this is uh, no surprise to the seven years war community because these books uh, those rules, have been out since i don't know early a few years now a few years now um But I've just been bitten by the Seven Years' War bug pretty hard and managed to get enough figures on the table to play. I have to say I like them a lot. Good. Uh, Fairly simple. Mm -hmm. um, And, uh, you know, some really, really simple concepts, uh, but a fairly fluid system of um, brigade initiative and variable ratings for commanders. Commanders can be, you know, average, um, dithering, which means they're really incompetent. Some inbred idiot with a powdered wig. Yeah. Um, And then uh, a few of them can be dashing, which I guess would be, I don't know, some like the Prussian Hussar generals from Frederick's army. Um, And it really all depends upon the the brigade commander and what the brigade gets to do, and then sort of a random sequence of activation. You know, whoever wins the initiative can choose to move a brigade or shoot a brigade. And uh, so you never quite know when you're going to get charged or countercharged or when you can charge so there's i like the rules i think they would work nicely with larger armies um hmm.
1: now that's a good because that was that was something that uh my group found with age of reason is our armies got so big we broke the rules
0: yeah yeah i don't know i I think we all played age of reason for quite a while didn't we if we were interested in the lace wars that was the yeah p- post um you know, post-WRG, that was really the only game in town for a long time in the 90s. Yeah. Now I guess your choices would be Black Powder or, um, I don't know, what
1: else would you play with uh, Army-level Seven Years War? Well, oh I keep hearing good things about Koenig, Koenig's Craig.
0: Yes, yes, that's true.
1: Not sure where you find it. Probably got to dig around online.
0: Yeah, yeah
1: yeah i don't know i think i'm
0: going to under the category of life may be too short having just turned 59 i think there's i'm, I'm still willing to experiment with rules. i'm still a rules fan uh I, i'm curious but i think at some point you have to dance with the one you brought
1: um, well yeah and and i think my my ability to learn really complicated rules is is um decreased
0: hmm.
1: like i remember i remember playing empire 3. yes you know, like, good lord.
0: <laughs> I think uh, I think this is the one you gave me, right? I'm holding it up to the microphone. Uh, y- yes. Yes. I looked in the box once,
1: and uh, I was terrified. I um, put the, put the bo- box lid back on?
0: Yeah. When, when you realize the roles require you to think like a core commander but manage your skirmishers at the company
1: level, I was like,
0: huh, I'm not sure what kind of game this is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and then yeah, and then but then somebody says, oh, but it's really so you know you just kind of like you know you pop out all your skirmisher companies and then you have your skirmish line and you just do that you know and you add it up and you do it's like what? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think I might prefer Blucher where it's like here's your brigade it has this innate skirmish ability.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like cool.
0: Yeah, we should play more Blooker because I feel like that's kind of a gem that I saw briefly go by my attention span and I think. Um, you know, yeah, we I, had. I, I, It's probably the ideal game to play with my 6 millimeter figures. I'm very fond fond of it. Sam puts a good game together. Speaking of rules, just very quickly, sometimes you know that old saying, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And you you remember it from Wayne and Schuster, right? Remember what? You remember it from Wayne and Schuster, right? Rinse the blood off my toga? Right. Yeah. Just remember Flavius, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Hey, wait a minute! When did Rome do what the Romans do? I like it. You like it? Yeah, it's yours. <laughs> anyway. So the guys at the what passes for the local gaming club here in uh, Barry, uh, we get together at um, Sir Games a lot. And uh, God bless Vincent, the owner. He's uh, he's kind of a crusty, funny old Brit, but he's got a big heart, and he's um, I think he's just tired of selling a lot of games workshop merchandise, and his heart is really in historical, So. He's been um, trying to promote a few different rule sets. He's been trying to sell people on sharp practice. Oh, very good. Um, and uh, lately I, I went by, I went in and um, uh, sometimes Monday afternoons when I'm free, I go in for a couple of hours of gaming and everybody was playing Ancients. And uh, it turns out it's a game, a set of rules called Clash of Spears. Have you heard of it?
1: Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't read anything about it. It's written by two guys out of
0: Italy uh, in English, um, published by something Hedgehog, Aggressive Hedgehog or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's a big, thick, glossy book. The first book is set in kind of the Roman Republic. So if you like Punic Wars, that's your thing. The, The downside is that it's very much like Infamy Infamy, and it's kind of like a skirmish level game. So you've got bands of five or six troops each armed with a different... You know armor class or troop type or capability right uh so you know it's pretty pretty sharp and tactical and um there are some rules for fatigue and armor and <clears throat> so forth
1: so uh, you're, you're worried you're worrying about how many javelins each guy's got and
0: well not necessarily but you're worried about how many javelin guys you have and you want to get them forward and you want to soften up the the heavies before your you send your heavies in and, and then you want well yeah if you want to play your heavies back and rest them, uh, then you might want to move a screening force in. So, it's not that crunchy in terms of how many javelins you have, but it's each each dude on the table is is a dude, right? So if yeah. you like if you like skirmish gaming, um, it's great. But I think it's in some ways it's comparable to Infamy. If you want a giant ancient battle, then you probably want to go like uh, Mark Backhouse's uh, Strength and Honor, where you've got, well, like, yeah blocks of legions on the table
1: that's that's the that's the ultimate yeah. you know big battle game yeah so
0: yeah just because i'm i'm i want to be able to play this game with the, the local guys i i bought a set of rolls and i'm i thought to myself well ancient figures do i i've got lots of lord of the rings figures in fact i could probably even figure this out to just do lord of the rings middle earth skirmishes right well, yeah, so your gondorian is basically a roman legionnaire and you know well Lord, uh, give or take <coughs> call it that if you want to it's a guy with a big shield and a suit of armor and a sword that looks like a gladius and rah, 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 rah.
1: Hey, yeah. they don't throw pila before they charge yeah i know, the, I know. They're, they're different tactically whatever yeah but anyway it seems to me that i could use
0: those rules if i wanted i know that the Lord of the Rings in their so-called strategy battle game, which was a funny thing to call a tactical set of rules. Yeah. uh, Had a set of rules for, you know, person-on-person combat. But anyway, so that's what I've been doing lately in the way of rules. What have you been up
1: to? Uh, Well, let's see. You've seen all my gaming. Yep. Because you were there. Uh, I've been painting. I've been assembling. um, I got some MDF kits from war bases. So some uh, nice South German with the, you know, timber frame buildings. I've been putting those together and some. Very uh, tempting. I saw those on Twitter. And some baggage wagons from Napoleonics, which mm-hmm. I haven't started to put together. Um, and I've got to, I've, I've basically got to knuckle down and assemble a bunch of Prussians. So I painted the one, the one bunch I had assembled. Now I have to glue more together. Huh. Except I'm worried I'm gonna run out of glue, so I need to get to a hobby store and buy more glue. So it's just and it's just been bits and bobs, like I've been uh those twenty five pounders you gave me are, are gonna get primed hopefully this weekend and I saw that, so that's a little
0: bite of the ogre group blood uh, a bug. Y- yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You know, um it kinda happened. So You gotta
0: have twenty five pounders.
1: Yeah. Um they're cute. I like twenty five pounders. They're
0: cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about uh, those buildings. Uh, They do look sort of very dramatic. Mm -hmm. If I was looking for a building range that sort of said Eastern Europe, Prussia, Seven Years' War, would they do or would would you point me in another direction?
1: Well, yeah, like they would. Yeah, they would certainly do. Um, Or Sarissa has um, some as well including a nice uh eastern european church
2: Mm
1: -hmm. which I was trying to convince my wife to get me for christmas but she said no wargaming related christmas ideas yeah i was like damn it fine slippers i guess like get me a you know bottle of port and a block of cheese (laughs) as long as there's some as long as i get some books too that's right yeah (laughs) Port
0: slippers, denture cream. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, not yet. Not yet. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Not my teeth are good.
1: Yeah. I don't think my I'll need any good. denture cream. Yeah. Yeah. No. The war. The war. bases buildings. Uh, they have. If you look on their catalog, they have Prussian buildings, and I got theirs from their, the Tudor. The Tudor section of their their catalog, but they okay. also work for Southern Germany.
0: Cool. I'll have to look for some of those. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've kind of covered up, uh, covered uh, what we're doing in the way of hobbying. And Mm -hmm. uh, I am, oh, the one thing I want to just sort of give a little plug for is that our friend um, Keeper Dave on Twitter has been doing this little challenge where he's, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but he basically said, uh, don't buy any minis for six months. Just paint what you have.
1: Yes, the six-month miniature reduction. The Lead
0: Mountain reduction thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I... Well, when Scott comes over, I am getting my Perry order, but they were technically made before he started the challenge.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: I mean, I haven't... And I haven't officially joined the challenge because I think I'm weak. <laughs> and come April because like six months that's a long ass time man.
0: it, it is a long time. Yeah.
1: That's like that's like May
0: it before is. it ends. Yeah although May is not as far away as one would think.
1: Well you know it's but still already... it well I know but that's what I mean like it's May and and I'm pretty sure that I will break and I will you know usually it's it usually seems around March April. I get the bug to launch a new project.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: You know, I start out January, February, being really. I'm just gonna work through my lead pile. Look at me go painting all this old stuff, and I I knocked some old crap off the pile this year.
2: Right.
1: And then it's like, oh look, Napoleonics. Look at me ordering hundreds of figures. Yeah.
4: It's like, oh shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. We are weak.
0: I I confess. Uh, i dave if you're listening i'm in but you have to excuse that bag of victrix german uh guys that i bought for the uh ancient gaming at the hobby store um so if you if you can just give me that one
1: um i think that's your uh, that's your mulligan you're allowed you're allowed a mulligan
0: well i think he said an individual figure i'm not sure he said like a bag of 60 uh victrix uh, plastic oh i thought it was just a purchase well okay i'm going to call it the mulligan and then, of course, I had to get some of
1: those uh, nice little Big Men uh, shield decals to put on them. So I'm assuming All those are hobby just... supplies don't count. Oh, there you go. Paint, okay. brushes, glue, brushes, terrain, yeah, glue. don't count. It's just not buying go. figures. Not buying figures. Well,
0: I think the way I... The rate I paint, I have enough stashed away that I could get to make quite quite happily. So I'm, I'm in.
1: It's whether the enthusiasm lasts, right?
0: Well, you know, I, I am, like you said, weak and my brain... He's basically a squirrel in a cage, so who knows? <laughs> yeah. And then after we talk to our guest on the podcast, who's coming up, we may want to go off and get uh, Early War Canadian and, and Japanese infantry because the Battle of Hong Kong, goodness, that's a story that our, our guest uh, Brad LaCroix knows all about. Yeah. And uh, so... Um, we're going to uh, we're going to move to the uh, Canadian content corner, and we'll introduce Brad, and uh, we'll learn all about Hong Kong, which. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. Well, we're back, uh, and we are so happy to have um, his second time on the pod, the podcast, Dr. Brad. I just like saying that, Dr. Brad, Dr. Brad St. Croix. Brad, welcome.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me back on. It's, uh, it's great to be back on the podcast and talking about something uh,
0: I know quite well. Something you know a little bit about, yeah. Just a bit. We, You've been a, a super busy guy the last few days. You did uh, a live stream on your uh, YouTube channel yesterday, which I had the pleasure of watching. And um, you've done um, a podcast for the Juno Beach Center, specifically on Hong Kong. And that's up now, isn't
4: it? Yeah, it's available now on the website and yeah. easy to find.
0: Yeah. And uh, you also did a really interesting conversation about um, the role of, of Hong Kong and our military identity in terms of, you know, maybe the, Canadian fascination with defeats and I, there was some interesting stuff there that maybe we can come back to because as James and I were sort of you know saying a little bit ironically it's a Christmas story in that the battle ends on Christmas but it's not a happy story it's a no. it's really in some ways it's a Canadian military tragedy isn't
4: it um, it, it is I mean yeah like you said it, it it ends with the surrender of the entire garrison on Christmas day 41 yeah, yeah. It's, it, and that's just the beginning in a lot of ways so you yeah. know yeah. awfulness so it's yeah
0: well, let's uh, let's get to that in a minute, but just for the benefit of our, some of our listeners who might not know you, Brad, can you just say a little bit about yourself and how you got into uh, military history and maybe a little bit about your, you know, your academic work and what you've looked at? And...
4: Yeah, so I started, um, really, I guess the path starts when I was very young. I've always been interested in military history. I think a good chunk of it comes from my, my grandfather, who was a Second World War vet, served in the Canadian uh, Army, didn't go overseas, but served the last part of the war. Uh, he was always into history every time we'd go visit or whatever. He always had a new book. that He was reading about something. It could be U.S. Civil War, more in the Pacific, First World, War. he was all over the place. So I always remember that. And then just being drawn to these stories when I was young. I mean, I, I remember, I guess that generation who came to this stuff because of Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, that time period uh, and all that everything surrounding kind of the 50th celebrations and commemorations and everything. So I think that had a big chunk to do with what I, what I like to do. And then it just kind of grew from there, learning about family connections. As I moved into undergrad, I learned about more and more about family connections. I had to Canadian military service. My great grandfather was also uh, served in the first world war as a conscript, which is an interesting story in and of itself. And then I realized later on, I had a a relative killed at Juno beach uh, on D-Day. So it's just kind of gone from there. Uh, But my academic stuff, I started actually, (laughs) it surprises a lot of people with uh, American studies, actually, as my MA is actually in American studies. I don't hold a history degree at that level. Uh, I did a bit of a different path. I initially looked at um, the role of Pearl Harbor and its impact on Hawaii and how that led to Hawaiian statehood. Uh, And that was a very different way of looking at something. It was one of the few works that really looked at it that way there was some stuff but it it looked at it in a different way not just necessarily the military connections but cultural what that meant and and Hawaiian identity in and of itself and getting to visit there which uh, visiting Pearl Harbor was an you know important part of kind of understanding a lot of this and talking to people in Hawaii and then that I took a bit of a break after that wanted to try some different things that didn't really work out (laughs) decided to Go back on the path and uh, back to academics and get the PhD, but then focus on the Canadian topics, obviously, because of my connections that I spoke of earlier, but also because I wanted to keep doing the Pacific. Um, Because especially in Canada, we don't think about Canada and the Pacific really at all in the Second World War. And I think that's unfortunate, Um, but there is very little to discuss. I mean, there's more when you start digging, but Hong Kong is obviously the big one. Mm-hmm. and uh, I was just trying to spickle ideas what I wanted to do for my proposal that kind of thing and then I stumbled upon well really the historiography controversy around the Battle of Hong and then it just went from there and then I was hooked so and I've been doing it ever since.
0: Yeah and I, I think is it is it fair to say that you're trying to uh your your work on Hong Kong has been trying to kind of resituate it and try to I don't, I don't know myth busting is kind of a popular word these days but trying to dispel some of our our myths or preconceptions about
4: Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, it it didn't start out that way. Um, In all honesty, I was trying to take a different, you know, tact and looking at what impact it may have had on decision-making and attitudes and things like that. But then I started getting into it, and especially with, like you said, the myths, and that is how I framed the dissertation, is, you know, myth-breaking in that sense. I mean, I I used it in a, a way that I got a little bit of flack. I literally compared it To zombies in the sense uh, of how these, yeah, it's really interesting and it sounds weird, uh, but it makes sense. So my supervisor found this book um, because he has a lot of connections down in Australia, actually, in military history down there, and a whole bunch of their leading historians. Like I don't know if you know any of them, like uh, Jeff Gray, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He was the titan of Australian military history. Like he he was on that book, and it was literally just looking at different myths and comparing them to zombies, right, these undead things that are very difficult to defeat, right, that just keep coming, but also, you know, they rot. So they they continue to get worse, but they're so hard to take down. So it just, like, that clicked for me. And I'm like, this is Hong Kong. This is what Hong Kong is, to the Canadian memory of the Second World War.
0: Right. So by zombies you mean you know like uh, misconceptions or myths that just won't go away. They they keep yeah yeah
4: and then sometimes get stronger depending on you know how worse they seem to get, that kind of way yeah
0: yeah.
1: Well especially when you've got you know this online community where every drunken half-informed idiot at the end of the bar has this massive soapbox to keep perpetuating things right.
4: Yeah, that's definitely, I've run into that a lot (laughs) on the online communities, but just even generally, maybe we can talk about this later, but because it has impacts, I think, on on how we understand it, but you wouldn't know this problem. Remember, I remember slightly because I was still quite young, but the Valor and the Horror, when that came out, huge impacts on how this battle was viewed.
0: Yeah, I remember watching that when it first came out because it came out in the early 90s, I think. Yeah, And, uh, you know, I, I guess the... What I dimly recall from that series was, um, you know, the idea that the the contingent we sent to Hong Kong Sea Force were kind of, uh, you know, sacrificial lambs offered up on the altar of the British Empire, and yep. uh, they had no business being there. They were they were just massacred by the the, the much more professional Japanese army, and it was, uh, yep. you know, Canada knuckling down to its British masters. I think that's kind of the, the sense that most of us have about it in an in, in an uninformed way yeah
4: yeah yeah and i mean and it's it's just interesting because that was a three-part series right they did bomber command and they did normandy and the more i got into looking at this and understanding it i remember because i was in i can't remember grade three or four and i had a teacher who was talking about the, the bombing of germany uh, and and now realize everything she was telling us came from the fear and the horror so it's just so interesting how these things have an impact on how people view stuff and how this entrenches in their minds yeah. and hong kong has definitely been infected has been infected maybe infected <laughs> by that as well right it's 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 definitely a lot of people who talk to me when I, when they, they ask cuz they always ask
0: yeah, yeah. And your your uh, your passion for talking about this is pretty admirable. So let's let's kind of just reframe this in terms of um I mean there's all sorts of angles you, we could take political and and that sort of thing, but this is a this is a Toy Soldier podcast, oh, yeah. terribly serious toy soldier podcast. And oh, completely. Uh, yeah, totally and so we're kind of interested primarily tonight in just talking about the military aspects of it and, and how they might possibly be um we might learn from them, you learn about the battle by trying to simulate parts of it. So um, just to put you on the spot, Brad, have you at any time ever done any war games or toy soldiers or anything like that? You, it's okay to say no.
4: Not really. Um, not something I, no, no, I mean, no, I mean, does risk count? I don't know. <laughs> That's really about it. It's, um, played that a little bit out. when I was a kid. I was more of a video game kid. Yeah, yeah. a little one yeah. percent maybe. I guess I, I, I was sort a, of, sort of. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I was a video game kid. I was never really into the board games. That's okay. Me and my brother were, were video game guys. Yeah. And so that's just like that's kind of I guess where I. You know, learned it in that sense. I mean, it's just something that I never got into. But I, I now that I do this online presence and everything, I meet all kinds of people like you guys who do this, and it's it's sounding more and more interesting to me, to be completely <laughs> honest. And and seeing what that even like because I, I guess this is part of why I want to do this part of the podcast. I don't fully understand it, so I think I want to like understand it a little bit. So yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we'll come down to March. Uh, come down to Stratford in March, and we'll uh, we'll introduce <laughs> you to the whole concept. So let's start maybe just sort of from the top down um the you know, there there's a simulation aspect to to wargaming historical wargaming that I think James and I totally buy into which is that you try to you try to model the game or the the simulation based upon what you know about the 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 conflict what you know about the two sides the geography the the composition of or the order of battle you try to play that out whether you're doing it with paper and cardboard, or in a computer simulation, or um, as the d- kind of default that James and I have, you know, trying to put um, various different scale models down on the table and operating by different kind of rules. So, can we talk uh, just in terms of the battle itself? So, today's December the 9th. The, the battle itself started on December 8th.
4: Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it starts on the end.
0: And it ended, as we said, on on um, December 25th. So. Could you maybe just sort of give a rough sketch of the, the two sides, their their um, the, the number of troops involved in their capabilities?
4: Yeah, so I'll start the, the, the Japanese side vastly outnumbers um, what I will probably refer to as the British or slash Commonwealth garrison. Uh, the, the Japanese army allocates a whole division and Japanese divisions are larger than Commonwealth divisions. Uh, at this point, uh, but they don't throw all the resources in because they didn't think they needed them. Turns out they were right, um, but they had more complements of artillery. So you're, you're looking at more augmented, again, their regiments are different and they're not organized, say, on the British lines, obviously, uh, but the, the, the regiments are bigger than the battalions. So you're, you've got thousands more per regiment and they throw three regiments, sorry, three battalions. Uh, basically are the strike force, uh, and those are 1,000, I can't remember exactly, off the top of my head, 2,000, I think, Japanese troops per regiment, which is way more than, than um, sorry, than the Commonwealth ones, how they were organized at the time. But they are augmented at the Army, from Army, army level with artillery and air resources, which come from the 29th um, Army. So they, they have a lot more. So uh, the, the garrison is made up of uh, six um, battalions, two British, which are the Royal Scots and the Middlesex Regiment. The Middlesex Regiment are a machine gun regiment, or battalion, sorry, at the time. Uh, And then there's two Indian Army regiments. There's the Rajputs and um, the Punjabis. There's two of those. And then the two Canadian units, which I obviously know the best. Uh, The Royal Rifles of Canada, based out of Quebec City in the Eastern Townships, and the Winnipeg Grenadiers out of Manitoba. Uh, But again, I do want to preface that by saying there are members of C-Force, as the reinforcement is called, from across the country. Um, Both of those battalions were under strength for overseas deployment, so they had to augment the force. So they're grabbing troops from centers, mostly out in um, Manitoba, but also some from Ontario. And then a few other regiments contributed, uh, a few men, but it was all, again, based on volunteer. And then you have uh, a headquarters section, which includes everything right, medical, postage, provosts, supply, signalers, uh, all of that. So there's people from all over the place, Uh, but no, and this is important, no artillery assets and no air force really Mm -hmm. other than what the RAF, which is, it's not even really worth talking about because it's destroyed on the ground instantly. uh, And there's a small naval contingent, uh, but again, and it fights well above its weight. I mean, there's one destroyer, the, the Thracian, but it, it runs around a couple days into the fighting. Uh, but then again, it's an important thing to remember. And I'd also like to highlight all the other fronts, right? The Japanese do not outnumber what you can call the Allied garrisons, right? Singapore, the Philippines, this is the only one where the, the Allied position is weaker in terms of number of troops than the Japanese. Right. So that's an important part of, of the story here.
0: So, you know, and the, the Japanese troops, like briefly, were they, would they have been veterans of the war in China? Would they have yeah.
4: been... Yeah, so this is their troops of the 38th Division. They are they had been informed they've been formed in China in 38, 39. they had been fighting for a number of years, um, mostly in central China at this point. Um, again, I looked at a lot of the intelligence and things like that. So there was confusion on who was where and what they were doing, um, but they eventually did track them obviously to the border. Um, but yeah, they had been involved in the fighting in China for a number of years. Uh, and, and yeah, there was skilled pilots and particularly, again, I'm going to keep talking about the artillery because it is that important and it's not talked about as much, uh, is very skilled and, and a whole number of batteries, you know, mortars, mountain artillery, traditional, sorry, conventional artillery, everything. So they're all very skilled at what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I had a
0: chance to look at the orders of battle, actually. I, James, I found them actually in a, in a rapid fire scenario. Um, yeah. It was like a mini campaign that uh, Conrad Kent sent uh, sent to me. So yeah, the Japanese have a ton of artillery assets. They've got air assets, and the 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 Imperial Dominion forces have some shore batteries because because it's a static defense mostly, right? Uh,
4: uh, y- yeah, it is. Yeah, in a number of ways. Yes. And then
0: they have they have a, a small amount of mobile artillery. I think they have a couple of eighteen pounders and maybe some yeah. light field guns and light anti aircraft guns. And yeah. Yeah.
4: The 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 shore batteries. Yeah. Are they, they they play a small role um not too too, too much yeah. uh, defensive line on the mainland uh, in the area called the new territories uh and, and the defensive line is a very poorly named it's called the gin drinkers line right. it's on gin drinkers bay yeah. and only the bay got its name because that's where pleasure cruises left from and brits of the time period uh, drank a lot of gin so um because of the health effects of quinine, uh, right, with the tonic. So, yep. it, so it's 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 how it got its name, supposedly. Um, couldn't really confirm it, but uh, but the, that static line is supposed to hold on for a long time. Even the Japanese allocate a week to take it; it takes less than a day.
2: Yeah,
4: to, to unhinge the position, it takes a couple of days for the Japanese to understand what they've actually done, and for the troops to to fall back.
0: Yeah, I think. Um... General Moppy is the overall commander. He, he figures the gin drinkers line could hold for maybe a week, I think.
4: He, he, it, yeah, again, estimates vary. I mean, the and this is part of my dissertation uh, was trying to understand this because not too, too much had been done on the overall story of the gin drinkers line. Um, it had been an idea for, uh, at that point, decades in different forms, but it's not until the 1930s that they finally start to build it. Uh, and it's not even completed by the time the war breaks out. Uh, they scale it down. A lot. Yeah, he thinks, that I saw estimates anywhere from a month, six weeks, to a week, uh, to even 10 days. Uh, it was, again, all over the place, depending on who you asked and who was in charge at the time. Uh, but yeah, multi figures, he can hold it. He thinks he can hold it longer than, again, an, undef- an undetermined period uh, when the Canadians arrive. Yeah. Uh, changes the plan on how to defend the colony.
0: So after the, the, so there's two phases to the battle, I think there's the mainland fighting. And then once the, the, the Jindrigar's line is compromised then the, the defenders fall back onto the island.
4: Yeah, they do. So yeah, the, the um, one of the, the, the Singmon readout which is like the linchpin of the defense falls very quickly to basically, uh, it's hard to describe because it was done purposely by basically a reconnaissance force. They ordered just a recon or Recky, sorry for the Canadians. <laughs> but they, they take the position based on some really good planning by the, you know, the, the sub lanterns who do this job. Actually, at one point they're ordered to fall back because they weren't ordered to take it. And they were outside the divisional, oh uh, sorry, the regimental boundary. Uh, but then they realize, hey, we've unhinged their position. We, we have to hold this. So that's what causes the line to crack and, and for the fallback to happen. And then, yeah, they fall back to what is you know, the Kuala Loon Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And opposed to what's actually thought about often about the, the retreat is the retreat is very ordered, actually, through Kuala Loon. Um They get most of the assets off mainland and into the islands, which is rare, right, for allied uh, defeats at this, you know, this part in the early war, the Second World War. So that's kind of one of the another one of those myths that of, everyone just thinks it's retreat. So therefore, it's just, you know there's order, chaos, things are left behind, and that's that's yeah. not the case. I mean, there's hardly any casualties caused uh, from the garrison at this point.
0: Uh-huh. And then to get on the island itself, is it an amphibious assault? Like, do the Japanese have to storm the beaches? And, and yeah,
4: well, yes, yeah, but not in the more conventional sense. Um, so th- there's a basically a week uh, just under, uh, between the retreat on the 11th to the crossing on the 17th. So this is when the Japanese really bring their assets to bear. They, they, they pummel the island's defenses. Right. endlessly. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the bunkers that are on the island, uh, artillery positions, um, hitting basically part, parts of opportunity, supply lines. Uh, and I did some work on this and I, and I wrote an article on um, what I termed and what others have termed the fifth columnists who are Again, who they were is still unclear. Um, A lot of them may have been Japanese soldiers that just were integrated into Hong Kong society before. A lot of them were Chinese refugees supposedly who were just offered money to help the Japanese. They would literally like light lamps next to an artillery battery to signal
2: Hmm.
4: and that kind of thing. And and it's just there's too many coincidences that I found in my article that doesn't that makes that this was a you know an effort put together to 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 undo um, the garrison defenses and and you see that in this period the softening up period i guess you can call it as defense defenses and, and then yeah so so the assault itself is rather ad hoc in the japanese they don't really have a plan on how to do it because they weren't thinking it was going to happen so fast so they're basically at some point some of them swam across um, they're jumping on whatever boats the didn't you know the garrison didn't destroy before the retreat uh, they're literally using whatever they could uh, to cross and they do it at nighttime. and they take um, again they use the element of surprise and they're able just to basically outflank the main position that they attack uh, across on the, uh, the myland passage which is a very short chunk of water to cross uh, and they make the landing. Um, Effective, effectively land and hold that position and are able to push into the island very quickly. So What? when do they have, what day do they have the foothold on the island? Is that, what date? You know, that'd be the 18th is where they really establish the foothold. Okay. Not yeah. because they attack it overnight, 17th, 18th. Right. 18th, and they're really establishing their position and then they, they're they able to move, basically, they are, they're able to move into the center of the island.
2: Yeah. Which,
4: the important center of the island today for roads, um, the wong Nai Chong gap, they reach that by the 19th and if you look at any map of Hong Kong Island even today you can easily pick it out because it's where all the roads meet because it's the only place they can because of all the mountains. We mm. knew that, that was an important position but so did the garrison and that's where some of the fiercest fighting takes place on the island.
0: So you know from a gaming point of view then there'd be sort of two phases I guess the the, the most interesting phase being the defense of the island itself yeah. So yeah let's talk about Sea Force. Um, you know I, I yeah. I, I've seen pictures of the, you know, you and a couple other guys, um, uh, Tom, uh, uh, Thomas, I can't, James, what's his name? Tom, Guy in White Rock, who, Thomas, <laughs> Thomas yes, Emmett, I think, yeah, he's, he's um, the uh, ex-RCN real guy, but he, he and James, <laughs> James Brunus, who's a, a naval reservist, both do some great Twitter accounts with pictures from canadian military history i'm always yep. struck by those pictures of the garrison you know on the prince robert i think it is the the yep. trip. you know and they all look so crisp in their in their khaki shorts you know and they've all got their tin hats and it's it's hard not to think you know geez those guys like they you know you, you just want to feel sorry for them because you know what's going to happen to them right right yeah and i i guess this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the myths about the battle right so i i have I didn't ha- we didn't have time to address this on your live stream today. So maybe you could talk about what you think of the relative quality of those those two units, the uh, the Royal Rifles and the Grenadiers, uh, compared to the Canadian Army of the period.
4: Yeah, so it's a really, I think, an interesting part and in of itself. It's a complicated part. And so there's a lot of myth around it because. I don't mind saying this now because I think some people just didn't want to put in the work and were too lazy to do it because it wasn't easy. Um, So they didn't want to get actually into the nitty gritty because the selection of these two battalions is one of the most talked about parts of all of this. There is always the claim that they're placed on a list saying they should not be sent overseas on any duties whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What is always omitted is what that list actually meant. So there was a policy in place within the Canadian army actually put in place by who would become Sea Force's commander, um, uh, J.K. Lawson. He, he put in a policy that if they had been overseas in any, in any duty, and this included Newfoundland, right, which is still technically overseas at that point, they had to undergo a period of training to come back up to standard to be sent again. So mm-hmm. they're on what became the C-list, the bottom of do not send both of them because they had just both returned from garrison duty. The Royal rifles were in, in Newfoundland, and the Winnipeg Grenadiers were in Jamaica. So that's why they're on this list. So that they're saying that they weren't trained is not true. I dug into the war diaries. As, I read every word <laughs> of those training war diaries, a, because they're the only you know full out war diaries that exist because the originals of the units were burned right uh, mm-hmm. while fighting. Uh, but they do reveal some interesting things that I had never heard of. There's lots of training going on in Newfoundland. I mean, a lot of it is not applicable to Hong Kong. <laughs> which is unfortunate because of the weather conditions, right? They're literally training with skis at certain points um, because you have in Newfoundland, but they didn't know they were going to Hong Kong, right? But they are doing things like field craft. Um, They're doing a lot of rifle training. Uh, Yes, they're lacking equipment, but so is the entire Canadian army. So that's an important point also to keep in mind here. You can't, if you don't have it, right? Nobody had it. So that's part of this and the Grenadiers, which I think is one of the more interesting parts of this whole saga, and people sometimes they they give me that, he's a little crazy when he says these, is I think the Grenadiers were probably the best trained unit to go to Hong Kong. Really? Why I say that is because what the Grenadiers did, yes, they're on garrison duty in Jamaica. They have to keep up certain things in Kingston, running the port, making sure it's safe, all that stuff. When they're not doing that, they're training in the mountains. Mm. They're doing as much training as they can. They set up, literally, they build their own camp for this purpose. And it's the same sort of weather that you face in Hong Kong. It's the same sort of terrain you face in Hong Kong. Yes, it's hard to train with, you don't have all the proper weapons and you're not fighting an enemy. Mm -hmm. Battalion is undergoing any training like this. I looked, there's nothing like this. And even I, and again, this isn't even applicable because units that were in the UK were on the definite do not touch list or ones that were on their way within a short period of time were on the not, you know, do not touch list. None of them had even done any training like So it's, it's an interesting reason. And I think why one of the reasons they were selected to go is because they had this training that no one else did. No one else had had the (laughs) semi-tropical mountainous training. So I think it's, it's an interesting part that again, gets left out and and what that means. And they're doing this for months. They're training for months. Mm -hmm. It's just something that's left off. From the story, um, purposely so by a lot of
0: people. So that would have been the, what? What
4: sort of training would that have been? Like uh, company, platoon level attack? Yeah. So it was they got to company level training. Yeah. They weren't able to do uh, battalion level training just because of the demands of garrison training and sorry garrison duties and security duties, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. What What another one was interesting too is the Royal Rifles, while they were in Newfoundland, had done. Off the top of my head, at least three or four major. I think it was almost the entire battalion, except for one company, was doing garrison duty. They were doing anti-invasion drills. <laughs> okay. They'd be like, "You have to get here. You know, pick a spot on the map. Go. You are going to defend it now." Yeah. So, doing these kinds of things that they would face in Hong Kong. I mean, ultimately, they didn't even take that role in Hong Kong, but they were training for certain uh, things that came up and did come up. So, to say that they're untrained. I think it misses the point because at this point in the Second World War, show me a battalion of the Canadian army that isn't trained by that definition. They're nope. no different than any other battalion, including the ones in Britain. Yeah,
0: and I'm not an expert on this means, but James, maybe you've read something about this, but the, the battle schools that the British start setting up in, in the UK where they're trying to train people under realistic conditions, those don't really get going until 42, as I recall, right? 42, 43 is when because they're learning lessons from the desert and from yeah
1: so yeah it's, it sounds about right
4: yeah the battle drill schools don't start until they have an impact uh, and because again too if if you want to look at uh, troops in britain right they're on they're on anti-invasion duty right there they're, they're yeah. man, machine guns uh, yeah. you know, Kent or sussex right they're they're yeah. not doing they're not doing any heavier training so it's it's, 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 it's all relative I think in this and to keep saying untrained misses the mark and yeah. that the things that bothers me the most is when I see untrained.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's hard to, I mean, that's really fascinating because I was looking at the uh, very sketchy history of the Royal rifles. Um, so they're uh, like, you and you commented on this earlier, Brad, about how both these regiments have to be brought up to strength very much in the way that today the Canadian army brings up uh, units by amalgamating by them with reservists from all over the shop, right? Um, yeah, so that to bring the Royal Rifles up to strength, they have to draft in 400 guys from the 7th, 11th Hussars, right? Yep, just another another Quebec unit. And so it, it kind of left me wondering well, how much time do those guys have to get familiarized themselves? You know, people get familiar with new officers and NCOs, and yep, and
4: yeah, I mean, some of them had been together since the beginning of their service, right? But the ones that you were talking about, like, and there's ones from uh, the Medlin Regiment as well. Are, are added on to the the order of battle
2: mm-hmm.
4: yeah have hardly any time some of them they meet on route to vancouver to head over so yes obviously there's that element too right of of a lack of cohesion or even knowing who's who at this point point. and i'm not i'm not displaying you know i'm not downplaying that 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 is a problem yeah but it, it what is another thing that's often forgotten is and this is where the conspiracy things start to come out right is they had no idea the war was coming right they at least had months. They at least thought they were going to get till mid nineteen forty two to to get ready for what the war may even look like. They don't even know what it's going to be. So they thought they at least have six months. Yeah, ones who were not trained, but trained, and that is a small portion of the force. It's a very small portion of the force, but it's for some reason has been come to define the whole.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody forgets that. Yeah, like early early December forty one, the Japanese just moved. Like, stupidly fast. Oh, yeah. Like, they made the German Blitzkrieg look like a slow walk.
4: Oh, yeah, big time.
1: But thousands of kilometers they covered and the multiple targets they attacked. They, they're hitting, you know, hitting the American fleet in, in Pearl Harbor. They were hitting yeah. the Philippines. They're hitting Wake Island. They're hitting Hong Kong. They're still carrying on major operations in China. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just a huge outlay of resources and
4: effort. Oh yeah, It's massive. I mean, the, the staff work along to get to that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes you, it makes the Germans it look like amateurs.
4: Oh, it does. hundred percent. I completely agree, James. Uh, like that's a really good point. And, and another thing I like to bring up too, I, I meant to say this earlier, I just forgot kind of given the quick rundown of the battle is the invasion of the attack of Hong Kong where it takes place a few hours after Pearl Harbor, right? Yes. Right. It's a different date because you're playing with the international dateline here, but it, it, it's lightning quick and it's all, over. Like they, and I've looked at the reports. I've looked at all the declassified intelligence. There's no inkling of any of this. What they actually think is going to happen, which does happen in part, is they're going to hit Thailand. They think they're going to hit Thailand first and then move through there. like Because they had moved through, not really, they were just, the door was open through French Indochina, right? They thought it was going to be another one of those. It's a slow occupation and a buildup. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they're getting attacked from everywhere. I mean, the landings in Malaya take happened actually before Pearl Harbor. So these things are happening so fast and are carried out so well that they're just overwhelmed. And when I say they, I mean the Allied forces, right? Because they're hitting, like James said, everywhere. Philippines, Malaya, yeah. Hawaii, right? They're hitting Wake Islands. Like it's, they're everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's 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 absolutely shocking for sure. And and as you pointed out, I think in your live stream, Brad, there, were, there was a school I thought that the Japanese might just attack the United States. They, they may, right. not, may leave the British Empire alone, right?
4: Yeah, they thought that was a possibility. Um, British intelligence thought it, American intelligence thought it. Yeah, And they're all talking to each other at this point, right? America's not in the war, as yeah. everyone knows. They're not in active combat in a lot of ways. Yeah, There's a ship in the Atlantic that everyone seemingly conveniently forgets for some reason. Uh, but they're working together for quite a long time at this point. So they're both thinking, and they're sharing intelligence information. They 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 don't think this is going to happen. So they're like, we have to plan for certain contingencies, right? What if they just hit? What if they just hit America? What right. if they only hit certain parts or certain countries? What do we do? You yeah. know. But then it happened. to solve that problem for everybody.
0: So let's let's put our war games design hat on for a second. So there's two questions I think that are interesting at this point. The first we've touched about the level of troop quality. So I, I don't know. I, I won't ask you to comment on the we're kind of a Canadian podcast. I want to ask you to comment on the the British and the uh, the Indian troops necessarily but you, you know usually in a war game you rate troops uh, on a scale right so they might be either like yep. green, they might be green or they might be regular or they might be veteran or elite and, and usually that's a combination of, a, of training and doctrine and experience. So where would you put the the two Canadian battalions?
4: <laughs> oh that's a tough one yeah i guess that's where my lack of more gaming uh, experience <laughs> is gonna... I
0: mean, you, we'll make it easy for you rate the japanese on a scale of one to ten and then rate the canadians on a scale of one to ten with ten being
4: most effective yeah uh, the japanese i'd put them at a nine out of ten um right i would have uh, i would have said the like when i was at the ending stages of my dissertation i would have said lower but i've talked to a vet since then i've done more reading since then and uh, the vet i talked to george mcdonnell like he just he couldn't of course he was put through literally hell on earth uh, but he had respect for the individual japanese soldier and infantryman when he was able to accomplish with what they were what they had and what they were doing he i talked to him and he just couldn't give them enough praise you know in the abstract so that's why i break them so high because of experience doctrine battlefields dash i mean they're at certain points they're doing things that are seemingly superhuman which plays into that whole myth of the Japanese superhuman. But in Hong Kong, these are just some experienced units who know what they're doing. And they do some stupid things, but they do some very, very, like they'll just charge machine guns at certain points, which doesn't work, as we know. Uh, there's quite a bit of that, actually, because they get funneled. Um, that's the only part of the defense that really works well is funneling the Japanese into areas and into the heavy machine guns. hmm uh, because that's just the way the island's laid out uh, but the yeah. thing is like the tactical developments changing plans adapting overcoming conditions that are so difficult right i mean the conditions in hong kong are difficult for the defenders they're difficult for the attackers as well right so yeah. this hilly yeah. terrain water gets cut off supply issues all of that they're they're adapting now with the canadian units i wouldn't put them down to the, you know the low end like a lot of, i assume a lot of people and they're not the best they're not not alone men of the some of the men had seen combat in the first world war but those are the older men the and some of them were ncos like some the, of them were, like john osborne was yeah. john osborne was an nco yeah he fought on the western front for a very brief time period right. um, he's cast I actually got it finally got his service file at the end of my dissertation oh, okay it's, it's tiny. I expected it to be huge, and there's hardly anything there. Yeah. Uh, actually, just an aside everyone keeps, I've said this multiple times. I've had to tell government organizations, everyone thinks he fought at Jutland. And I go, there's no evidence of this. Huh. <laughs> he, he served in the Royal Naval Division on the Western Front. So okay. some people like to make a story out of that. Right. And they're just a regular line division by that point. Um, but anyway, so sorry. Yeah, there's a lot of NCOs who have combat experience. The commanders are all First World War veterans. But, you know, the core of them, the, sorry, the mass of them don't have this combat experience. So I would, you'd have to put them down lower to more the average range, five or six, um, yeah. because I do think they do better once the fighting starts. Uh-huh. But if you're going to do like a pre-rank, right, you, you, you can't give them that more because they just lack that combat experience, which yeah. they can gain very quickly yeah. and are learning. Um, but it just takes some time to get there. And it takes a lot of casualties to get there.
0: Yeah. So James, maybe it sounds like not green, but maybe regular would be a fair. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. Or some
1: some rules you can you can tweak it to sort of inexperienced but well trained. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing.
4: Yeah. And and I don't know. Depends on how
1: gritty your gritty your rules are.
4: Yeah. Like I don't know if if you know having that you know cadre of trained NCOs and good NCOs makes a difference in the war gaming, depending on how you're doing it. But that is. Yeah, that sticks out to me in the readings and everything that I've done with this over the last six years is this NCO core is very good.
0: Yeah. And if you were modeling that tactically, Brad, then, you know, you, you would have, there's lots of tactical rules where you'd have individual leader figures and you would, you could rate them quite highly in terms of their ability to rally and direct fire yep. and that sort of thing. I have a, a photo on my wall you can't see it from here, but a, my dad in a, in Aldershot in late 40 and, uh, he's on some course he's just a directing staff on some course and there's three or four guys in uh, about 40 of them you can all tell they're older and they've got some of the world war one ribbons on their battle dress and i'm sure that was common most of the canadian army in those years right if you had a, a company you would probably have two or three great war vets in it yeah they probably knew their stuff for sure yeah
4: yeah it's quite common i mean that's a Big talking point in terms of the historiography of looking at the training of the Canadian Army, right? Because i all roads lead to Italy and Normandy. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's definitely an element that I think is misunderstood. A lot of historians have presented that as a bad thing. Yeah. That these First World War vets are somehow out of date, outclassed in some way. Like they're still thinking this is 1916 when that's clearly never been the case. Like these are the guys who. Who fought through the hundred days yeah so that yeah they, they
1: invented forever. fire and maneuver
4: exactly so right. like it's just it's another one of the, i get these are the things that irk me and that's one of them right it's yeah. like mm. that doesn't make any sense
1: well it, it just kind of you know it's playing into the whole you know colonel blimp you know old incompetent daughterer who's out of touch with the modern reality not that the young guys know anything at all yeah, yeah it, it's annoying
4: yeah. it's 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 really interesting because again osborne well, i think he's probably had the most work done on him i mean because he for obvious reasons right when the victoria cross and everything but yeah. his writings and everything because he, he wrote to his family quite a lot and you can see in his because i've read those letters these things coming through and he's talking about this stuff about what, what i have to do to get his men ready for war and the issues and everything and it, i'm not reading like this is some you know bumbling you know lieutenant on the first day of the psalm here like that never comes across, so it's yeah. it's just an interesting, yeah. It's a thing that's got in the stuck in there, and I do blame the valor and the horror for that, and uh, it's one of the things I fight against. <laughs>
0: Your crusade. Speaking of that, Colonel Blunt, that's a good segue to talk about Lawson. He's he's an interesting guy because he's the oldest. I think he's Brad. Is he the highest ranking Canadian officer killed in World War Two? Yes, combat. Yeah, so he's a yeah, killed in combat. combat. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. and he. The, he's an interesting guy there's different uh, different opinions about him some there's a lot of stuff that it probably isn't right about him published right about oh, yeah, his the lack of experience and he was just a hudson's bay company clerk and Not yeah. true. in fact he's a, he's a he's a real professional soldier isn't he he's a
4: professional soldier uh, the hudson bay thing is before the first world war right because uh, he, he enlists in the cef serves with the cef works his way up uh mm-hmm. the staff work doesn't by all accounts an excellent job and as I'm sure you are aware and aren't, that some of your viewers are aware of how good the Canadians get at the staff work as the first world war moves on, yep. right? Like things like canal de Nord and <laughs> the planning for those obviously shows that that's the case. Uh, anyway. So he works his way up. He becomes a professional soldier in the interwar years. Mm-hmm. There's authors out there that just seemingly make up claims that he's a school teacher works for the Hudson's Bay company. Yeah. None of it is true. He's a full-time professional soldier. He's part of the Royal regiment of Canada. Like he, yeah. He's there for years and he, he was, goes to the
0: Imperial Staff College at Kedah.
4: Yeah, right. I was gonna say, and then he selected to go to Kedah. He meets lots of British Indian Army officers, right? Like, the, and he was said to understand their way of thinking in a lot of ways because he was one of the few that hadn't gone to Kedah. And, and the, Indian, so the, in,
1: the Indian Army at the time it was that that's where all the British officers went to get solid experience. Yep, Like, the Indian oh, Army yeah. was incredibly professional and well trained.
4: Oh. Very much agree. I mean, the, the, the fighting uh, or yeah, the, well, fighting it's not already fighting on the, on the Northwest frontier is nonstop
2: Yeah, you know,
4: period. Right. So it's, it's where you go to get experience and that's where Maltby was, came from. He comes from the British Indian army. Right. So as well another one of the, 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 other brigade commander at Hong Kong. Yeah.
1: I think we, I think in, in Canada, uh, at least with popular history, we like the idea of, you know, before world war one, before world war two, you know, we're all just in our log cabins, chopping yep. wood and wrestling bears. And then yes. the war starts <laughs> and we rally to arms and yep. go defeat the Germans because yep. we're just great. There's no mm-hmm. there's no mention at all that we do actually have a professional army.
4: Yep, it's yeah. the militia myth. That you're yeah. describing. What's, that, what's, what's that, that,
0: that line from Billy Bishop goes to war? It's much too complicated for colonials to discuss, but it's much too high and mighty to ignore. So if it's good enough for Britain, <laughs> it's good enough for us. Yeah. 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 So, so Lawson's kind of like like I'm kind of, you know, I spent a little bit of time in the in the Canadian Army Reserve, and I, he's kind of a familiar type, right? He's he's um yep. he's well trained. He's shuffled around a number of administrative positions, like staff positions in various military districts, yep. where frankly, there's probably a not for him, not a lot for him to do because there's, like, the Canadian Army does what, several, maybe one or two brigade level exercises at Borden before the war
4: one i think yeah
0: yeah Yeah. so you know he's probably he's probably really good on paper his experience of commanding large formations is probably pretty minimal but that's that's true of most permanent force officers um and and i think he was is it true brad he was actually the director of training
4: for the yeah so what i was saying earlier about that that infamous list that anyone whoever is written on hong kong talks about yeah training, And that's, and again, this is not, this is another aside, but it's part of this is finding documentation on this stuff is almost so difficult to find. Yeah, might sound a little conspiracy theorist ish, but I do have a little bit of backing here is stuff disappears. There's things that should be there that are not there. Hmm. Documents about who selected for what, or why they do what they do, these things are just missing. Anyway, so there's a bit of that, and it's all in my dissertation, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yes, Lawson is the director of training, and that is one of the reasons why he is picked, because they want a trainer of soldiers to lead this force that has parts that need training, but is going to go to a new condition that they've never had before, right? This is the first time Canadian troops have gone to East Asia since the the Siberian intervention, right, Right. 1919. Again, different conditions, but still East Asia. <laughs> uh, but they want a trainer of troops. And that's one of the reasons they pick him. And because he's so highly well-respected throughout um, National Defense Headquarters HQ, but the Canadian Army generally. Mm-hmm. right? He was supposed to go with the First Division to England. But he yeah. didn't because he had an ailment, a stomach ailment that held him back in Canada, which he suffers from the entire time he's at Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't go away. He has... Health problems the entire time so again thinking even knowing that and hearing of his exploits particularly of how he dies Mm -hmm. so much respect for what he was trying to do
0: yeah so he his situation his his brigade headquarters is is surrounded
4: yeah and that's that's i use that kind of as my launching point into how i often write about hong kong is because it's it's recorded secondhand right from his commander Maltby who's on the line with him being like just situation report really basically because that's all they could really do he just tells them we're surrounded and literally says I'm going outside to fight it out and Maltby claims he hears gunfire and then the line goes dead
0: yeah
4: and um uh of the 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 chaplain sorry is is captured later on and he goes to where the headquarters was to basically collect tags and see what had happened he finds Lawson's body Mm it's it's not a it's not really a nice picture it's he's he's really shot up
2: yeah
4: it confirms that he literally went down guns a blazing yeah. yeah, the best he just that's all he could do at that point It was either surrender or and again as, as a lot of people know surrendering to the japanese is sometimes fate worse than death
0: yeah i wanted to come back to that in a bit because just to talk about some of the dynamics of the battle but i, I just going back to loss and i think you know i I don't know if he came across this, but I suspect Lawson probably used the three or four weeks. Those guys were on the troop ships to, um, you know, have lectures and and training like that. You know, it'd be really interesting to sort of, he did not. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't waste any time, but he probably, like you were saying, was hoping yeah. for a few months where he could have brought his force up to scratch. And, yeah. Yeah. That's
4: another interesting. Cause he kept a, he kept a diary, a very, very, very minimal one, but he kept a diary. And he, he talks about this part of the training. Yeah. And funny how he writes it because he's talking about, you know, physical training you know, PT and he's even talking about himself. He's like, you can't not do this. You have to do it too. Every officer has to do this. I don't care. Like, and he knows he's, he's sick, right? He's not a well man. Yeah. He's even writing that you have to do this. Like we're talking about himself yeah. and he did not mess around. He was no nonsense in that way. Mm-hmm. This is confirmed by all kinds of vets, right? That, that, that this wasn't some pleasure cruise here. That's not what happened. Yeah. Working as yeah. best they could.
0: The best COs turn up at 5:30 PT with their troops. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. So the other the other thing that we put our war games hat on is if we're doing like an, an operational scale, or we're we're doing um we're we're picking a slice of the battle in the first few days. Some games or some simulations, if if the defenders caught off guard or by surprise, they might handicap the uh, defender for the first you know few turns of the game or whatever you know, limiting right. their movement or ability to react. With, if you were modeling like the first few days of the battle on the mainland, would you impose some sort of handicap on the defenders?
4: Yeah, I would. I mean, uh, and this comes back to Lawson a little bit, because that happened so early that happens on the 19th. Um, it, the, the, Cause he's in charge of the entire, what is the West Brigade, the entire Western side of the Island. That entire brigade starts to almost come apart because of Lawson's death, but also I would, and again, that sense of a war gaming, I would add more of a, would take some of those however you do it, points or whatever take those away because that causes a ripple through the entire sea force and i'm talking about the troops in the east brigade because the two canadian battalions are split up yeah are in the west brigade the rail rifles are in the east but they know they know lawson is killed they know he he's killed so they it impacts morale a little bit but also with the leaders who are making these decisions especially ones or thrown a position they never thought they were going to have to occupy, right? All also not I'm in charge of all the Canadians on the island. Yeah, not something that that was really planned for.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a photo I saw. Um, I don't know if I can find it really quickly. Uh, yeah, it shows Lawson on the on the troop ship the Swansea. So he's with um, uh, Major Linden, who I think was the brigade major. Yes, Colonel Hennessy. Who was Colonel yeah. Hennessy? He's uh, second in command. Okay, and then a, a Captain uh, Bush, who I think was the uh, yeah probably the staff captain, but yeah, the, all three of those senior officers are dead by the end of the battle. Like the yeah. whole the whole senior brigade leadership is wiped out.
4: Is wiped out pretty early. Yeah, like, but yeah, the Lawson is the is the big loss, obviously, because of the commander, yeah. um, and because some troops see him get killed, so it really impacts their morale. But his uh, yeah, sure. leadership is wiped out at that level. But also, as I discovered and doing more research, it's not, it's at the smaller levels too, or the lower levels, right? You have sergeants getting killed and a high number, like a huge chunk of them are killed within the 19th, 20th fighting is really starting. And then that you can see the discipline in certain units starting to fall apart or having issues of literally it's just confusion at certain points, right? Cause there's pockets, people are cut off. People are not even sure whose command they're under, right? Of the island depends on what the objective is and who's in control. It's, it's, it's a really difficult battle to understand in that sort of traditional sense. Yeah, How it's all even organized and who's under who, right? There's attempts to break through from the east to the west, it, which fail, like it's it just there's so much going on here. It's very difficult to yeah. get right. And i then and sorry, this is an aside, but I just don't think any author has done it right yet. Mm-hmm.
0: It, it, it sounds just like a complete mess. Like once the Japanese get on the island, and you know yep. the senior leadership are killed, then it's just almost a. Um, it it really it sounds like it devolves into a battle of small units, like platoon. It does, Japanese, yep. yeah.
4: And they're mishmash. Like you've got uh, there's one account I read of uh, one of those uh, RAF uh, aviators I mentioned. The, the commander basically the small amount of troops there. Yeah getting thrown in his line infantry with the Canadians and no one has any idea what's happening. They, they get cut off at one point, but they, they don't know they're cut off and then they've got to fall back. But then again, then there's claims of drunkenness and, and you know, all this stuff. It's, it's so difficult to straight because of just so many factors. It's difficult to well, try to do. You know.
0: in, in the first part of this podcast, um, which we recorded a few days ago, James and I talked about a, um, a game we're interested in called O Group, which models kind of battalion level actions, where the the player plays the role of a battalion or a battle group commander. But I think I, that sounds like too big a level to simulate here. I think, James, oh, yeah. you, you'd probably <laughs> want to play a game like um, Chain of Command, where you're you, you have like maybe a couple of mixed platoons thrown together. Yeah, you know, I think that's that would be. I think you, I think
4: yeah, you have to. Yeah.
1: that, that sounds that sounds like probably the better way to play it because. At least at the platoon level, you know, you can have a local victory, right?
4: Right. Mm-hmm. And there was. Um,
1: the higher the level you get, the more it's like, no, you, you just, no, there's no way <laughs> for the allied player to win yep. um, unless you're like playing against a clock and then it's, you know, you're fighting for time and you win if the Japanese, you, you know, don't capture Hong Kong until like November, uh, January 1st or something.
4: Yeah, and that I think that's a good point, James, about talking about the small victories because there are small victories. Um, again, they're very difficult. They don't. Their impact is minimal, right? Because of the overall strategic situation and how everything devolves within that quick period, right? Talk about the number of NCOs and and officers that are killed in 1920s. Those four days, five days. It's there are. There's many. Like I, there's many accounts of Canadian troops a learning. Like it's just that's why I was thinking about that earlier. Yeah. Like, missions in Hong Kong, they adapted very quickly. There's one point where the, the Canadians are talking about being pushed off a hill, which was their entire battle. But they're learning if we burn the scrub, the Japanese will retreat, <laughs> and they they did that on multiple occasions. And there's other times where the counterattacks work. The Canadian uh-huh. their positions, they're just overwhelmed later on. Yeah, and that yeah. happens repeatedly. And and the,
0: the other thing that I I, I read to in a designer notes of a one larger campaign game. Uh, from a set of rules called rapid fire, the author suggests that the British morale, the imperial British uh, dominion morale, should be high because once the uh, once the defenders learned or heard rumors that the Japanese weren't taking prisoners, that uh, that stealed their resolve to fight. Would you say that's fair, Brad?
4: Uh, no, unfortunately, um, yeah. it, it doesn't. It didn't really work in that sense. I mean, the atrocities are known, sort of. I mean, they happen in isolated pockets, right? And the brutality was so bad. If there was killing, they killed everyone.
0: Yeah.
4: Everyone. I mean, I'm not even talking, I'm talking civilians, medical personnel. They were absolutely brutal. I mean, the, the most, you know, the most well-known one is probably St. Stephen's College because it's mentioned in the an Valor and the mm-hmm. Not there is killed, but they're cut off by that point, right? So the troops don't know what had happened other than the ones who were there. So it's, it doesn't really come up. They don't, but the ones I have talked to or the ones I've read, they don't want to surrender because they don't want to surrender. They mm-hmm. just want to give in, not because of the atrocities. They just want to keep fighting to the last because they know they're in an impossible situation, but they want to go down basically guns a And I don't know if that's youth bravado because uh, a lot of these guys are very young. Uh, yeah. me. <laughs> so it's, it's just, it, it's part of that. And I I don't think it's, they're aware of the atrocities some of them are they see some things like murdered POWs they see you know bound hands things like that they see that a little bit
1: yeah i mean wouldn't they have heard about things like the um japanese behavior in china by now though
4: yes like the, the um
1: ranking, et cetera. oh yeah
4: that was very well known um how do i say this uh, it's it's passed off in a sense uh, and this has a lot to do with the British Army thinking uh, towards China itself. They think it's just because they they did that to the Chinese, and they'll only do that to the Chinese. They think the Chinese are even weaker than the Japanese, right? They there's so many racist attitudes here. Right, nice
1: thinking. Yeah, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't dare do that nasty thing to us nice Europeans.
4: Yeah, well, and they're and the experience that they knew of of Japanese taking European POWs prior to this was actually good. Oh. German POWs in the First World War, right? At Qingdao on the mainland. There's the fighting with Russia, 1904, 1905. Those POWs are very well treated. Oh. Huh. Expectation that they might actually treat them well. Right. The German POWs taken in China are treated extremely well in the First World War.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Second World War, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> not so absolute brutality.
0: Absolutely.
4: Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolute brutality. Yeah. yeah.
0: Brad, you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, the role of the um, the one chaplain who found Lawson's body. That, that's uh, because I go by the the handle of Mad Padre. That's a fascination of mine. So there's, I think there's two Canadian. I don't know if you ever researched any of their diaries, but there's two Canadian chaplains with the Sea so Force: a Roman Catholic and a, a Protestant. Yep. Which which one was it? Who was present at the uh, the surrender and was chucking their weapons out of the dugout before the Japanese showed up? Um,
4: you know, do you remember that story of the Grenadiers uh, at the Gap?
0: The story that I remember is that um, uh, I can't remember which which Canadian unit it is, but they yeah. they know they're they're about to be taking they're they're about to be captured. Yeah, they're they know that um, you know the, if the Japanese find all these weapons, then they're going to be uh, they're going to be yeah. in trouble. So the so the Padre you know tells them to get rid of their weapons, and he tells the walking wounded, for God's sake, if you can walk, you better walk. Hello.
4: Yeah, it's, yeah, that's Uriah Late. He's the one who finds Lawson's body. Right. He writes about this extensively. Uh, and he's, he's awarded the Military Cross for his actions. Yeah. Uh, he, he does. He does that because that's, that's D Company of the, of the Grenadiers. They're on the other side of the road from Lawson when he's killed. And they hope for days and days and days. So that's why he's scared of a reprisal because they took a huge, huge number. The Japanese took a huge number of casualties taking D Company's position. Huge, because that position is stocked with ammunition and heavy machine guns and burn guns. Burn guns, sorry. And they do a number on the Japanese. Uh-huh. He he tries to get them to the, anyone who can stand can stand because the Japanese, once they get into the buildings, they kill any non-walking wounded. Right. Just murder them. Right. Um, and they were going to kill him, he thought. And there was a language dish issue because he was helping the wounded. Yeah. Scared he was going to be killed, but he eventually somehow talks his way out and getting killed and then he talks his way into getting some water and I think he gets milk or something at some point from a Japanese soldier and then gets to and he's the one who's detailed to basically check on all the dead of the area and that's how he finds Lawson's body but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah he tried but it just it didn't work unfortunately yeah. they just killed outright and- yeah
0: yeah, late, that's right. He's pretty fearless. Like he wanders around for a couple of days after the battle. And yep. I, I think it's he's he wrote that it was just he, he a couple of Japanese soldiers who happen to be Christians, um, yep. you know, kind of protected him.
4: But yeah. Yeah, that like you think he attributes it to that. I mean, again, there's language difficulties, right? So he he just tries to use gesturing and yeah, it's as he tells it, right? in his diaries and his recollections, because he's interviewed well after the war. Yeah. I had that file. It's just yeah he he he's an outstanding figure in all of this and what he's able to do yeah with those men and then into the camps as well is a, uh, an amazing story
0: yeah good chaplains are pretty ballsy that way and then I, I, yeah. I came across just as we're wrapping up I came across the story of a Japanese Canadian war criminal the Canloops kids <laughs> you talking about him
4: yeah Canlanoy uh, so born at born and raised in Loops British Columbia uh, and as because he was captured at the end of the war. Uh, he he was telling, and some of the POWs, he would just outright tell them about his life. He's like, mm. you treated me so poorly, you know, we as white Canadians. right? So poorly, it's now your turn to be treated like this. He would beat and, like, he would just be so ruthless and he would just beat so many people. Like, they don't even know how many people he may have killed. Mm. He just beat so many people so mercilessly. Like, the Japanese, sorry, the British prisoners in the same camps didn't call him the Kamloops kid because they don't know can't believe this is right they called him slap happy because he was so violent and right. so brutal so they try so when i say sorry the canadian government after the war tries to try him for war crimes you can't try one of your own citizens for war crimes <laughs> doesn't work under the law at that time so that case falls apart they get him for treason and then they hang him in 1948
0: in Hong. Kong. so he's hanged the, he's hanged by the british
4: no, he's hanged by the Canadians.
0: Oh, by the Canadians. Oh, okay.
4: Yeah, there's Canadian representation on, on those war crime tribunals in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah. And they, he's one of them. So we didn't hang Kurt Meyer, but we hanged this guy.
4: Exactly. Huh. I don't want to get started there, on Kurt Meyer.
0: There's irony. <laughs> it makes, it makes you wonder if skin color had something to do with that. It has
4: know. everything to do with it. Little, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. got everything to do with it. Oh, yeah. And the fact
1: that he came from Canada and then, you know, turned on us.
4: Yeah, he was in Japan at the time of the war. So, enlists in the Imperial Japanese Army. Yeah. Oh. Because he wants to get revenge, basically, as he tells it. Well, it's an interesting story. Yeah. So, Brad, this has been absolutely fascinating.
0: Thank you so much for. Um, yeah, no problem. Uh, we're we're going to put you on the spot in a second, but. Uh, Go ahead. And ask you to contribute to our, our library. But first, um, I just want to congratulate you. Your YouTube channel has reached 1,000 viewers.
4: Yeah, 1,000 subscribers. Yeah.
0: 1,000 subscribers. Yeah, that's great. Wow. You're a, you're a pretty tireless presence on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, you're on this day Canadian military history account. Uh, I'm going to put links to all this stuff up uh, in the podcast notes. So can you just talk a little bit about your social media presence? And is that something that just kind of, like, obviously you're passionate about it. Where, where did that come from and where do you see it going?
4: Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, the, the, the Twitter account is how I started all of this. Um, I was trying to get back. I got back into Twitter. I used to be in Twitter like a long time ago when I was on that. Journey of trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, kind of thing. Right. It working. So, as I got into the PhD a couple of years in, I think it was my fourth year, uh, I think, because it's been two ish years over now running it. I was like, oh, I can use it for networking opportunity because I just was poking through it one day when I was bored and I just noticed a lot of historians um, and things like that. So, I'm like, okay, cool. So, I started getting into a little bit and I started noticing there's on this day history accounts. There's a lot of military ones. There's some stuff dedicated to particular, you know, conflicts, that kind of thing. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a Canadian one, right? There's got to be. And there wasn't one. I looked forever. I looked for days and days and days. Um, Couldn't find anything. And one night I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to start it the next day. It'll be good for networking, whatever. Build a name. Try to get a job afterwards when I'm done. And then it just kind of built from there. And it started getting attention then i started getting followed by some pretty big names like i'm followed by pretty much every branch of the canadian military war museum cool big name historians uh, some celebrities a whole bunch of people so i just kind
1: of me and james well right? yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're the biggest
1: <laughs> Bring and then yeah I've met dozens all, of fans i've
4: Begins. met all kinds of people that i would never meet right and different working in different areas like you guys i know more historians now i know lots of enthusiasts people who just want to learn more uh so that's just i'm going to keep doing the twitter thing i'm not going to stop i don't have any plans to stop doing that the youtube was same sort of idea there is channels out there but they're long dormant they haven't posted new videos in years yeah. so i was like it was another day i was literally trying to do a post for the twitter account i'm like well this would be cool to have a video of this i think it was the normandy landing uh, Of the north shore that famous video that everyone's seen whether they know they've seen it or not you've seen it right right
1: right. it's the only footage you guys getting off a landing craft that survived
4: pretty much yeah uh yeah and i was like oh that'd be cool just a short little clip and i couldn't find just a short little clip so i just made it myself and then i was like oh i might as well share this because people are going to ask because they'd had about my twitter stuff for a long time right so and i just kind of went with it and it's been something that people have responded really, really well to, and, and seem to really enjoy. And I can do different things with it. It's a lot more flexible. I can pretty much do whatever I feel like doing. If I want to do live streams, I want to throw a video together. I want to talk about something that's chen, you know tangentially connected to Canadian military history. I always find some sort of connection, and I make it work. <laughs> and it's just it, it's an opportunity I think that's not presented in more traditional, you know, mm-hmm. outlets like publications and yeah. big that take years and years to make and only certain people can make them i think it's just it's, it's a different way and i and i think it's something that was needed and something i i hope to be able to keep doing and just yeah. build as much support as i can at this point so i just keep yeah. to build it up a little bit more
0: uh, i mean you're kind of like staking out a, a kind of a claim between being a traditional historian and a, an online content creator and I, it's really exciting to see people like you doing that and i, I wish you all the best and i hope i hope um you know, is it your, is it your hope to find a, a, a faculty
4: berth somewhere, Brad, or, or? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, but it, there's yeah. things you want, right? There's lots of things I want, sure. uh, but it's not, it's not something I, I see as, a, honestly, as a real possibility at this particular moment, just because of so many factors. Yeah, yeah. Likely path for me at this point, so it is something I would, I would not, you know, say be like, no, go away, uh, <laughs> would be, uh, you know, it's not something that I'm, staking everything on it that's going to happen one
0: day. Well, I'm, I'm sure whatever you you do, will be successful and we'll follow you with, uh, and who knows, uh, you've been on the podcast twice now. So maybe we'll bring you back as our Canadian military consultant again. So there's (laughs) one one final job we have for you, Brad. So you're the, uh, this is our eighth podcast. We now have a a little virtual library that our previous guests have added to. So each of our guests adds a couple of, um, you know, digital titles. Uh, They can be a book on Military history and wargaming. There, there should be a Canadian connection somewhere, but not necessarily. Anyway, just a couple of yep. books that are near and dear to your heart. What have you got for us?
4: So the first one's going to be content. Uh, sorry, uh, Hong, Hong Kong related. You don't know, didn't have to me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it's 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 a really good book. Uh, and sorry, it's going to take a second to describe because it's not a traditional academic book, and it's also not a traditional popular history narrative. It's be, everything. Got, it's got, by Tony Bannum. It's called uh, Not the Slightest Chance, uh, I have my copy around here somewhere, uh, okay. but Defense of Hong Kong. Um, he, he does is he does a day by day as best as he could of all the events he could find. He tracks all of those who are killed, when and where and how, and then very extensive bibliography, uh, which has now become slightly outdated because the book was published in 2003, and a lot of new work has been done. You know, not just me <laughs> since then uh, that I've really added to the field. But that is the the one Hong Kong book I point people to because it's the, probably the best done. That's a book. Right. Yeah. Uh, another one that comes off the top of my head, I don't know what your other guests have mentioned, uh, but it's a uh, Canadian, completely Canadian connected by Mark Milner uh, about uh, the Canadians landing in Normandy, stopping the Panzers. Uh, it's a great book that looks at the Canadian, third Canadian division's role in what it was tasked with doing, which was literally stopping the expected German armor counterattack on the beaches. Uh, And that is what they do. And that is what they do extremely well, right? They Uh, stops and putting that very lightly with the 12th SS. And and Mark Milner covers that in such great detail, academically speaking, but also in such a, writes in such an engaging way that that I recommend to everyone who's interested in Normandy's
0: period he's a he's such an engaging writer i have that book going on my kindle right now and i love the way he starts with that the action where um i can't remember the army unit um but they take out six panthers in about uh
4: yeah the seconds? First is ours. yeah the first, first is, ours. is ours yeah
0: yeah so yeah
4: yeah that's an amazing action that no one knows about and yeah like as he said and he's told this to me because i've been on battlefield tours with him i've talked to him i don't know how many times now like if any of these actions in the book that he covers were americans they'd have movies about him and
0: yeah yeah, just just some, just some guys from uh, Middlesex County knocking out the the crack the cream of the German army. Yeah, yep. yeah, there's nothing in, to see here,
4: and seemingly minutes. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Mark Miller's uh, an interesting guy. I did. I didn't know that he had written a book about the Battle of the Atlantic. I was listening to him as a guest the other day, talking to um, uh, the two guys who run the. Um, oh, we have ways. We have yeah, we've got, and he's. It was just absolutely fascinating.
4: Oh yeah, he's a. People think he is a naval historian only. That gets him a little upset, because I mean, yeah. uh, he's done way more than just. Yeah, he's done two major books: the Battle of the Atlantic, and then the, you know the.
0: Well, that's fascinating, uh, and, and the the Tony Bannon book sounds. It's great. Yeah. The... Yeah,
4: sorry. So both of those are my like standards for things. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks, mate. Well, I will put those in the pod notes as well. And James, I'm thinking I've got to look at that Tony Bannon book because I'm kind of thinking now. um, You know, I've got those. uh, italian war canadians and 15 mil which at a pinch might do for like their guys in khaki drill with you know lee enfields and Bren guns, so they they might do in a pinch for the hong kong garrison and then i just need some 15 possibly mil, yeah need some 15 mil japanese and then hmm. this sounds like if i this is a because it's a day-by-day thing that would have all the scenarios i would need so
4: oh yeah i was gonna say that's why i was gonna suggest it is it lines up so well for wargaming perfect all right
0: Brad, thanks so much. I know you're uh, you you've been really uh, cranking out stuff online, and you must be tired. So uh, thanks very much for your time. I'll uh, we'll let you go and say good night. Yeah, no and problem.
4: Thanks for having me on. Uh, come back anytime you guys want. So, uh, happy to be on the pod. I really enjoy it. All right, mate. Cheers. Great. Take care. All right. Have a good night. Good night. day.
0: Hey, James. Hey. Yeah, I don't know. Do you want to do any like? Do you have any blinding insights
1: about that? Or- I think I think a lot of people don't even really know about Hong Kong. Yeah. You know um you know our current government doesn't really push you know Canadian military history you know so the 80th anniversary is being overlooked on the federal level and you know it's, it does it unlike dieppe it, we don't have the the solve that you know oh it, we we learned lessons and and saved lives later in the great victory at d-day right yeah. it was just this horrible mess, and we got totally surprised by the Japanese, you know, Blitzkrieg that just ran roughshod all over the Pacific, and oops, a couple of thousand guys died and didn't come back. And well, we just won't think about that now. Yeah. You know, so it's just sort of forgotten and swept swept under the rug, or swept under the rug and then forgotten.
0: And you know, I I just can't help but think, you know, you're some you're some lance corporal from, you know, some gritty part of Winnipeg. You're, you're up on some dry hill and, you know, you don't have a chance in hell of seeing Canada again when you've got three or four guys looking at you um, for leadership and, and uh, you know, you're you're short on ammo and the, the Japanese are coming at you and, and, you know, you just say fix bayonets and follow me boys and you go down the hill just like hockey players. And God, I mean, that just makes the hair on the back of my neck go up thinking about those guys. Um, well, yeah. How could they have been forgotten like that?
1: Well, yeah, and, and you know, unfortunately, there's, you know, no survivors to to tell the stories, right, to put in, uh, you know, to put in the recommendations for posthumous medals. Yeah. Um, well, we don't give medals posthumously, except for the VC, you know, and it's not like, you know, probably the individual Japanese soldiers would go, wow, you know, that was really, you know, like, brave and honorable, but, you know, we totally killed them. Now yeah. we're moving on to the next target. You know, it's not like they're going to, you know, immortalize our guys with like some soulful haiku about, you know, the falling of cherry blossoms and <laughs> no. you know, something like that.
0: No, I don't think so. But anyway, it, I, I have, um, you know, every time we, uh, I look at some period and I always tell you, I always tell you, no, I'm not doing another period. I'm not getting into another theater. <laughs> but, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to go after the Peter Pig website before I go to bed tonight and see how much a company of Japanese infantry would
1: cost me. So probably um, not much.
0: Probably not much because it's.
1: 50- and it's not like you need tanks.
0: No, I don't think. I think the Japanese had a couple of tanks, but so I'm not sure they ever got them. Um,
1: and their artillery, your, your artillery is all off. But well, you might want some regimental guns. Yeah. yeah. Had the regimental gun company.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, I think they had a battalion gun company. I was just I was looking at their table, the, at their organizations, and it's like, yeah, their their divisions were huge. Yeah. You know, like three times the size of, a, of an imperial division. It's a lot with a lot of organic artillery.
0: Anyway. Anyway, well, I think we're going to bring this to a close. So just a couple of um, adverts before we go. Uh, we'll be back in uh, January with a full podcast with somebody. It's yet to be determined. But we are going to try to do the Canadian Wargamer podcast Christmas party. And it'll just be basically a bunch of idiots uh, trying to get on the lap of Santa Graniard and telling Santa Graniard what uh, they want for Christmas. And Santa Granyard is a pretty crusty old guy, so I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know, what uh, it'll be some of the hot lead gang and some of the Canadian uh, glitterati of the wargaming scene. So stay, uh-huh. tuned. stay tuned for that. Maybe James and I will be there. We'll be in the corner with the moose milk.
1: And the groupies.
0: And, <laughs> I, I have yet to see any groupies, man. Anyway.
1: They're very coy.
0: Yeah, they are very coy. And uh as in fish, as in carp. <laughs> yeah. They're from, they're from Carp, Ontario. All right. And we are going to close as we discussed with the, um, the regimental march of that, uh, tragic and brave regiment, the Royal Rifles. And, uh, before I go, we didn't ask uh, Brad to talk about Gander the dog. James, do you know about Gander the dog?
1: No, I don't know about Gander the dog.
0: Gander the dog
1: is a giant Newfoundland
0: dog and he's, he's a famous doggo. And he is adopted by the, these guys, from the Royal, the Royal Rifles when they're in garrison duty in Newfoundland, they, um, they I think they make him a sergeant, not a sergeant. He goes to Hong Kong and uh, he is with the troops in the fighting and he dies, apparently, picking up a hand grenade in his mouth to get it away from some wounded, wounded uh, Canadians. And he has, wow. a, he has a medal. He has a, he has a posthumous medal.
1: He gets a Dickens medal.
0: The Dickens medal. That's right. So he's one of the great Canadian dogs in military history.
1: 110 percent good doggo
0: a very good doggo yeah so
1: yeah
0: uh, i don't Any enjoy words. like a newfoundland because they slobber or something fierce but, <laughs> yeah all right so, so we're gonna we're gonna go out uh and play the original march of the royal rifle so that's all from uh, that's all for me
1: and that's all for me
0: all right thanks for listening folks take care bye bye <sighs> Wargamer podcast is edited on a MacBook using Audacity software and is copyright 2021 by James Mantel and Mike Peterson. Thanks for listening. Take care.